0: Everybody, thanks for coming to the last open letter for Open Minded Progressives Twitter space, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna incorporate music going forward. Spurgler has uh, broken the seal on this. He somehow figured out how to get music in spaces. I'm gonna have to have him help me, but for now, we're just playing off my computer. Uh, a moldbug approved band here, so. I was going to start with banter, but we have enough... I think we have enough people to start proper here. All right. If Anybody wants to speak who has read the open letter, uh, request the mic. But if you haven't read the open letter, wait for the discussion period. Today is the last episode of this. We are then going to do at least two episodes on on the Passage Prize. Probably uh, one, well, definitely one with the three winners from last year. Well, there were four winners from last year, but I don't know the poetry person. So we're going to do the winner of Fiction, which is V.N. Ebert. The winner of Nonfiction, which is Charles. I have no idea how to pronounce his last name and the winner of Visual Art, which is Wide Dog. So that'll be the next Passage Prize space after this one. And then after that, we'll have a Passage Prize space with at least three winners uh, of the new Passage Prize. I don't know any of those guys, but I'll get in touch with them, and we'll make that happen sometime probably in June or July. Then after that, we're going to do a space on the last essay In the open letter which is how richard dawkins got pwned which apparently i've never read it i actually never even heard of that one until like this book was getting published somehow missed that one but they tell me that that one is specifically about it's like 90 pages and it's specifically about his idea that liberalism and progressivism progressivism specifically functions like a religion And I see Athenian strangers here. I hope he can come up later and take the mic because BAP just did an episode on Carl Schmitt's uh, crisis of parliamentary democracy. However, that episode was, I think four or five parts. And the last part, the fourth or fifth part was about political theology, which I had read the first chapter of before, but I've never read the whole book. And, As I was listening, I thought to myself, this sounds a lot like Moldbug. It it sounds like this must be where Moldbug got some of his ideas for his philosophy of the state from, or his conception of the state, and specifically his conception of how the state functions like a religion. So I went and read uh, the third and fourth chapters of that book. So I've now read the first third and fourth chapters of that book. I have to read the second chapter at some point. It's a short book. It's only sixty-six pages long, and it's extremely enlightening for a mold bug reader. If you've never read that book, you have to read it. Uh, it's like it's like uh, required reading for understanding moldbug. Everyone says uh, the Machiavellians is required reading, and I get why, having not read it. But this is this is certainly indispensable. Uh, Schmidt is a really unique writer in that he he possesses both the German uh, tendency for really impressive lucidity when expressing complex ideas, somehow paradoxically coupled with the uh, also very German tendency to speak ex- in extreme, overcomplicated abstractions. But he's not quite as bad as like Hegel or Heidegger. Uh, you don't have to work half or even a quarter as hard to read him, but he is a little more difficult than, say, Nietzsche or Spengler. And uh, reading the, the con- uh, excuse me, reading the political theology makes a lot of things very clear at once. The most pertinent to our discussion is that he makes it clear that Moldbug's approach to discussing. Politics is part of a long, a long, well-established tradition, and my tolerance for the the Moldbug naysayers has has been whittled down by reading Schmidt to absolute zero, (laughs) meaning I simply don't have any room in my intellect for uh, for uh, entertaining detractions from Moldbug based on uh, the idea that his his theory that progressivism acts like Protestantism, uh, I, I no longer am willing to entertain that because it's it's very clear that, that nothing he's doing is baseless. He is actually... I wouldn't go as far as to say he's a recapitulation of Smith, but he is building on Smith. He's like an updating of Smith... Uh, excuse me, Schmidt, for... American politics in the 20th century. So, I, I would like to do like a, a an elaborate and comprehensive overview of this book, but it's it's too far afield and not everything in the book is pertinent to Moldbug. So, I'm going to bo- boil down the important concepts that apply to the open letter, and uh, we'll have to leave a lot out. So, I'm going to just distill the important concepts in Schmidt that apply to Moldbug because it would take the whole conversation to explain um to explain schmidt in in detail but i don't know athenian if you have a moment if you can try to fetch Herodotian dreams i meant to get in touch with him earlier and bring him here because my friend Herodotian dreams has uh, an excellent blog in which he has a three-part essay series where he explains three of schmidt's most important books that uh well, he definitely does uh, political romanticism, political theology. and I can't remember. If he, I think he does the concept of the political in the third essay, not the crisis of parliamentary democracy. Um, if you're interested in Schmidt and if anything I says makes you want to know more and you, you don't have time to read the book, that is probably the best introductory overview I can recommend to you to, to read to, to for an introduction to Schmidt. Second City Bureaucrat also has a good essay that Bap refers to in The American Sun. But that essay is for, like, Schmidt enthusiasts, and it's far more comprehensive than I intend to be, and it's far more comprehensive even than Herodotian's three-part series. But um, f- for people who are interested in more, I will refer you to that and listen to Bap's most recent Caribbean Rhythms, which is his pinned tweet. So, very briefly with Schmidt, and anybody's interested, we will return to him later in the discussion. But to, to get through him, to get to Moldbug, uh, political theology is the concept that politics has the same, to use a Spenglerian term, morphology as religion. In fact, religious metaphysics is transferred onto politics over time. And over time, there is a his word he keeps using is transference. I like to think it's abstracted into or transposed onto uh, political institutions. But the interesting thing is, is the, the religious uh, theological ideas and relationship of people to religion, it's actually not transferred onto the state in any sort of like mechanistic way. It's transferred onto the state in the, the way it's conceptualized, the way it's understood. That's why this book, that's what makes this book somewhat difficult. It's very abstracted, it's, it's very metaphysical, and it's very much about the way the people of certain epochs and eras conceptualize the state. And he's saying they conceptualize it in ways that are similar to the way they conceptualize religion. And to point out uh, what I was saying about how Moldbug comes in a long tradition, a well-founded, well-established tradition, is Schmidt points to Leibniz as perhaps the first person to observe that the uh, state functions like a religion. He also talks about how Rousseau makes this observation, and then he goes through many other 19th century German, well, 19th century European, he talks about Spanish and French political thinkers as well who discuss religion in these terms and the genealogy is, is, is it's quite an impressive feat. What he does. It's quite an impressive intellectual feat. It's slightly because I said, it's abstract because it's so abstract. It's difficult. It's not exactly couched in like material reality. So he refers a lot to philosophers. So it's very metaphysical and it's couched, and I'm pointing this out because Moldbug is very couched in like strict history and strict like like political, legal, historical uh, events and like political the mechanisms of politics. Whereas Schmidt is much more interested in like the intellectual ideas of politics. So to skip quite a lot, maybe too much, but we have to get through it. Really where his books like ideas come in for Moldbug is where he talks about how it's not a coincidence that America established itself uh, and got rid of the monarchy and got rid of the monarch and removed the monarch from political life at the same time that the people doing so were deists. They were deistic uh, thinkers. They were uh, religiously deistic, which is to say that God – is basically removed from the equation of the function of the universe. Just like the monarch is removed from the e- equation of the function uh, of the state. And basically the idea is that like God sets the universe in motion and then refuses to intervene. and doesn't intervene in like material reality at all. So that the universe, like the the cogs of the universe physics, uh, the the mathematical physical laws that rule the universe are like up and running and run by themselves. And there is no like intervening hand of the divine that like imbues it with any sort of uh, religious divinity or provenance, just like um, the monarch who used to be the source of the law is no longer like presiding over the law. He's no longer the ultimate authority of the law. Rather, the law is set up in place and the institutions that are like created kind of run on their own and the law is mitigated through these institutions. Now, this should make sense for Moldbug because this is exactly how he describes the cathedral. He says the cathedral isn't like run by some central intelligent brain or individual who like m- makes it work the way it works it's up and running on its own and it's basically like ideology that runs it and there is no like conscious thought and he even talks about drift like he says that it makes sense that the and we talked about this last time so i can't really explain this insight but he talks about how it makes sense that the cathedral drifts left even though there's nobody like pulling it left there's nobody in there that are like agitating for it to go left now i'm not saying that's necessarily true but i am saying that that's moldbug's argument this is what according to bapp this is what schmidt says the crisis of parliamentary democracy is that parliamentary parliamentary democracy sort of automatically and of its own accord drifts left and the reason it drifts left is because you can always be more democratic you can, always, like, uh, you can always like, defer political decisions more directly to the people than you already are in a parliamentary democracy or in a representative democracy. Because in a representative democracy, you have an individual who represents the will, supposedly the will of the people. But in a direct democracy, which is like a form of communism, and Schmidt traces this, uh, he calls it anarcho-syndicalism. And he talks about Bakunin being one of the most important political thinkers of the 19th century, which should be interesting to you because a lot of people probably haven't heard of Bakunin or a lot of people probably think Bakunin is a minor uh, communist thinker. Uh, Bakunin deserves his own episode. But to make a long story short, Bakunin was kicked out or disinvited to the either first or second, I believe it was the first communist international which was a big fucking deal at the time. Like, everybody went to this thing. And his detraction from communism was he said that Marx and Engels were, like, advocating for the proletariat or the people, but the way they had their communist revolution set up is that the people wouldn't actually be able to administer the state or, like, ever the power of administering the state and and the means of production would never actually reside in the hands of the people because you'd have this, like, communist elite or this communist vanguard who have to, like, take the lead and then once the, the proletarian revolution happens, it will never, like... They'll never cede power to the people. They'll hold the power. Which is exactly what happened. Lenin did this, like, conscientiously with the Bolshevik revolution. This is exactly what these people did. This is more or less Trotsky's... Uh, detraction from from Lenin and Stalin, why he had to be killed. He's a little different. I don't uh, it's too much to get into but I point it out because there's a thread. There's this thread in the history of communist thought of these people who were conscientious from the beginning when communism was no more than just a book written by Marx and Engels there were people pointing out that this is going to lead to like a worse tyranny and dictatorship than uh, what you're overthrowing. So, um, Bapp in the episode talks about anarcho syndicalism. He's talking about Bakunin because this is what Bakunin advocated for. And anarcho syndicalism is basically like pure, und- uh, unmediated rule of the government and the means of production by the people. So, the workers take over and the workers rule everything by council. Okay. So, this is the key problem, according to Schmidt. The key problem, according to Schmidt, with liberalism and democracy is that they're deferring a decision indefinitely so that the king. Right. So here's here's the question. There's this inevitable thing he calls substance, which is this complicated philosophical concept that he says is a scholastic concept. The concept is like without without explaining what substance is the idea is that wherever the substance resides is like where the lawgiver is like doing the work of running the state or where God is doing the work of like administering like reality. Right. And the substance gets transferred over time. And it, it kind of, it kind of like travels as the epochs go on that it's like consolidated in the, the monarch, right? Because the monarch there's this interplay of power between like the monarch and the Pope and the Pope like imbues the King with divine power. So the question you have to ask is, okay, so what is legal sovereignty then? If the, if the King's power and like divine right to rule is, uh, given him by the church and the, and the, and the Pope, then what specifically is his like legitimacy and its sovereignty it's he's the one who gets to, like, ultimately decide the law. He's the one who gets to ultimately decide, like, who's violated the law, how to punish them, and if they can be pardoned. And this is, like, this is like uh, you, you can't really conceive of how much time this would take up for sovereigns and monarchs um, unless you read, like, the letters that go back and forth. Now, I don't, I don't know as much about the Middle Ages as I know about Rome. But Schmidt makes it sound very similar. Schmidt talks about how the king and the monarch is the ultimate arbiter of the law. And I know that because of, like, the the, the lack of cu- ability to communicate and travel uh, quickly in the Middle Ages, the king would actually have to, like, travel around the, uh, the empire, or, excuse me, the kingdom, in order to, like, administer the law, because he couldn't really do it from a centralized place. And the... Um, the governors in Rome of the different provinces were constantly writing letters to the king, right? So you'd be in um, you'd be in Antioch or somewhere, and you'd have like a problem with unruly Christians. This is a real exchange of letters between a governor somewhere in the east and Diocletian. But this happened all the time, where uh, you would have problems with. And Diocletian, I think, was the last emperor to persecute the Christians, uh, because people would write letters to him and say like. There's problems with these Christians. What am I supposed to do? And Diocletian would write a letter back and and basically over over the course of the conversation he would basically say to persecute them, right? The point I'm getting at here is that if you were in Antioch or wherever in the east and you had to write a letter to the emperor to figure out what's going on, you have to then send it on like a donkey all the way back to Rome. He has to like eventually get to the letter. God knows how long that takes. Then he has to send it back on a donkey. And that... It, each each trip takes like a month. So we're talking about several months' lag between the, like, inception of the problem and the, the question on how it relates to the law and a decision to be made on the law. And Schmidt makes a big deal about the decision, in quotes. The decision and the exception are uh, fundamental, like politically political philosophical political concepts for schmidt okay it all comes down to the decision because as the ultimate arbiter of the law the emperor or the monarch is the one who makes the decision right but then once it like gets transposed into like and it evolves into a uh, democracy a representative democracy but a democracy like ours in the beginning or in the beginning of Rome, where the only people who could vote were the landed aristocracy, like sovereignty then transposed itself from the monarch into the um, into the aristocrats. And in Europe, it happened in Parliament. Uh, sovereignty was then in Parliament, and just like deism gets God out of the way, they were they wanted to get God out of the way in Europe. So Schmidt says that they used Parliament to paralyze the king by like endlessly deliberating on uh on the problem right over time the sovereignty then gets transposed onto the people in like pure democracy now this is the leftward drift right because as you bring more and more people in to vote you have more and more special interest groups and you have to then liberalize the laws in order to have the laws account for these people and, like, meet their special needs. This is the the crisis of parliamentary democracy because it's, like, the more you grant suffrage, the more people you have to, like, accommodate, and that leads to, like, a leftward drift of the, of the uh, state. And this is, like, this is what Moldbug's picking up. This is why he says, like, Cthulhu swims left. You know what I'm saying? So now the decision. According to Schmidt, like, the decision is dissolved in deliberation, right? And he's getting a lot of this from this uh, reactionary Catholic political thinker named Denoso, who I'd never heard of before. But apparently there was like this um, reaction to the French Revolution where all these reactionary right-wing thinkers were coming to prominence. And basically what he said is that bourgeois liberal democracy, Donoso, bourgeois liberal democracy is just a bunch of endless conversations that never come around to a decision, right? So the decision is now deferred because sovereignty lies in the people. The decision is now deferred even longer, um, basically indefinitely, right? The decision is basically deferred indefinitely in this scenario. Whereas like in Rome, it was deferred for a couple months because you had to wait to hear back from the king, Right. So the way they talk about this like being structured like a uh, religion is that so you ha- the decision is the ultimate interpretation of the law. So it's like the highest form of truth, right? The truth in the- – and he- this is where he's comparing it to uh, religion. Like divine revelation in religion is like the ultimate truth granted by God and revealed by God through the scripture, through the priests, whatever. Now, the, like, interpreting the law to discover, like, the truth, like, wh- the, where does this real life circumstance relate to the text of the law, right? Um, the revelation of truth is, like, on the decision. That is the revelation of truth, um, which is to say that is how, that is what political theology is. That is how the state functions like a religion, Um Denoso says that basically democracy serves to like perpetually defer the revelation of truth. Okay. And that the only way to like make this happen or excuse, yeah, the only way to like bring the truth about and bring about the decision is a dictatorship. You need to like shut down democracy and have it ruled over by one person, one lawgiver and one uh, sovereign. And that would be a tyrant, right? Because, Otherwise, it will just, like, dissolve into endless conversation, right? This is very clearly in Moldbug, okay? Oh, so then, what Schmidt says, so Schmidt's insight, by the way, so this is the first chapter, Schmidt's insight into this condition of ultimate uh, perpetual deferment of the truth and the need for the coming of a tyrant in order to, like, make the decision is the exception, okay? The exception Is the one who, when the exception happens, the sovereign is revealed. If you don't know where sovereignty lies, if it's in this obscure, abstract place, like somewhere in the institutions, the exception is what comes around that forces a decision and reveals the source of sovereignty. So the exception. Schmidt likens to the miracle because in deism, there is no like room for the miracle because the miracle is their intervening of the supernatural onto the laws of physics, suspending the laws of physics, and then making something happen it happen in the world that is antithetical to the laws of physics, right, and that is to like break a deadlock or to solve a problem right so according to Schmidt, the only thing in a democracy that will stop it from like sliding into, like, perpetual deferment through deliberation is basically, A, physical violence, right? And uh, the bureaucrat's essay gets into this way more. He basically says politics, according to Schmidt, is a way to solve problems that could lead to violence but prevent them from leading to violence, and you solve them in a political way. So if you have this, like, backslide into, like, more and more democracy, this leftward drift... It will devolve into violence unless when the exception uh, presents itself, the sovereign is revealed and he steps in, right? It's very clear to anyone who's read the open letter how this applies to Mulbug. So he talks about the leftward drift, right? He talk- that's the crisis of parliamentary democracy. He then talks about the receiver, right? When he talks about a sovereign debt crisis, he's using Schmidt's words here. And in some cases, he's changing the words. So the sovereign debt crisis is his argument that the reason we're going to have a restoration, which, by the way, a restoration, which really happened in uh, the 17th century in England when the king was, like, brought out of exile, the Stuarts were restored to the throne because of... I can't remember what war it was now because I don't know that much about it, but this is, like, the long period of English Civil War. Uh, They needed him to, like break the deadlock and to solve the crisis and to make the decision so he came and then more warfare ensued but that was called the restoration because they brought the monarch back into place that's what moldbug is calling for he's calling for, he's calling his coup a restoration and he's saying it doesn't have to result to violence well schmidt says this is the alternative to having this scenario descend into violence so the exception for moldbug is the sovereign debt crisis now there's many problems with this, but they might not be the problems people think they are. But Moldbug says that the sovereign debt crisis uh, basically bankrupts the state, and the state can no longer administer itself. It can no longer like it can no longer like provide the things it promises to provide for. So they hand the state over to a receiver who is like a debt receiver, which means he's the one who takes all the state's balance uh, bank sheets and tries to balance the budget and then make the state go from the red to the black to make the state go from being in debt to being profitable. And he but sovereignty in Moldbug's conception of it doesn't actually rest or reside in the receiver. Sovereignty resides in the board of directors. And the board of directors are able to remove the receiver. Now remember, think of the receiver as the sovereign right, as Schmidt's sovereign, because the sovereign is the one who decides when there's an exception. Because when you decide when there's an exception, it means you decide when it's time to overstep the law and step in and intervene in the crisis. So the, the sovereign is not the one who, like, fixes the problem. The sovereign is the one who decides that there is a problem, stops everything from going on, and then appoints somebody to fix it. So Although Schmidt does talk about it as a person, you have to understand how Schmidt talks about politics because he always uses the term person for like a body of people or for an individual. And he even says that a person could be the welfare state, a person could be the police, a person could be the bailiffs or the bailers, the people who uh, pardon or sentence or um, otherwise decide like the punishment for the uh, for the person who transgresses the law so when schmidt says like the sovereign is the person who decides the exception you have to understand that he could mean a body of people and he 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 couches this he you know he defers to hobbes to like legitimate this in this insight because he talks about how hobbes talks about the leviathan as a person and like the people are just a part of its body you know what i'm saying so so when he says the sovereign is the one who decides the exception, he means the sovereign is the one who decides when you stop deliberating and you bring a, a lawgiver in. This is the miracle, right? This is this is the transference of the miracle into the political. Now, the question is, according to Moldbug, I was going to talk about uh, COVID for a second because the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben said that the... Uh, said that COVID was, uh, created the exception, and we should probably talk about that a little bit, and he was writing a lot about Schmidt at the time, which is how I ended up reading the first chapter of Schmidt, but for Moldbug, uh, the problem is that, well, the problem is, the problem, the problem with Moldbug's critique will actually take us off of Schmidt, so I don't, I don't really want to do that, but I hope it's clear, though, how, Moldbug's uh, conceptualization of all this fits in with it, right? So, so sovereignty lies in the people who decide to like stop the going on the goings on of the state and instill uh, and a decision maker, right? So the decider is the the receiver. Oh yeah, so the receiver is the person, right? Okay, so now I explained all that. I think I'm basically done with conflating Schmidt and Moldbug to show you how Moldbug like structures his political philosophy basically almost almost like holy on schmidt it's almost like schmidt is like the the framework at least for like a huge portion of what moldbug says so let me just get to the problem let me just get to the problem of what moldbug's issue is here with the with the transference of the power of the state right the problem is is that i don't see necessarily how a sovereign debt crisis will lead to this transference because uh, two examples I can think of are the French Revolution and uh, the American monetary system since 2008 because America has basically been in a perpetual sovereign debt crisis since 2008 that they've been fixing, quote-unquote, by printing money. And everybody talks about how you can't print money into infinity. It's going to eventually like lead to out-of-control inflation. It's going it's to crash the economy, and somebody's going to have to take it over. So it's easy to conceptualize... In your mind, how this could lead to like uh, an actual sovereign debt crisis, which would create an exception, which would uh, someone would have to step in. A technocrat would have to step in and take it over. This actually happened in Italy. I think his name was Mario Draghi. He was uh, he was installed in Italy in a non-democratic fashion in order to help them fix the debt crisis. That uh, they suffered after 2008 and after you know whatever, eight years of Berlusconi. But actually this is actually a really good example to show the flaw in moldbugs thing. So the one thing you can do is you can print money, and people like to say, well, that can't go on forever." And if you remember in 2008, there was lots of libertarians all over. like libertarianism like blew up. It was all over the internet. People were talking about it everywhere, right? And their whole thing is like, end the Fed. You can't print money forever. It leads to out of control inflation. Well, so far it hasn't led to out of control inflation. They've been able to account for it. I'm not saying it's healthy. I'm not saying it's in a good way, and it's ballooning the debt. But I mentioned Diocletian earlier. The way di- di- there was a crisis of the third century in Rome, and it, it, the crisis of the third century was fucking like just totally comprehensive throughout the entire empire. They had. Problems on every single front, economic, political, religious, invaders coming from other countries, from outside their borders and things like that. They had all sorts of problems. And one of their problems was like out of control inflation. Diocletian dealt with the inflation by uh, by, uh, diluting the currency because back then, you know, hard money was made by uh, copper, silver, uh, and gold. But I think what Diocletian did was they diluted the the coins with, I think, copper when it's supposed to be silver. So each coin was worth less money because there's a less amount of silver in the coin, right? This is their version of printing money. Diocletian did this, and it went on for, like, hundreds of years. This, this, like, uh, they say, you know, people say that this dilution of the currency – led to the terminal decline of Rome, but it took like two more centuries. Um, And the other thing he did is he like intervened in the economy and he like fixed prices and he set up what eventually became like the medieval guild system, where it was like, if you have this trade, your son is going to work in that trade and you're only going to be able to charge X for your goods and your products. And he fixed the prices, right? And libertarians talk about this a lot. There's books written about this, about how this led to like, the, the, the collapse of Rome. Well, what it really did was actually keep Rome hobbling on for another two centuries. Um, and it, Rome would have collapsed during Diocletian's reign, right? So my argument, in a nutshell, is that we can print money for way longer than the libertarians want us to think. I don't think it's a good thing. I don't think we should do it. Uh, but if you look at the evidence, everybody's been crying that the sky is falling. And we've had some serious problems that we really could have avoided if the, our leaders were like legitimate people who actually cared about the country. But we haven't had full scale economic collapse. The other problem with Moldbug's thing is uh, when there's a sovereign debt crisis, historically there have been issues where instead of like transferring power from whoever was in power, like the monarchy, onto like one person who could like take over everything <laughs> instead they would sell off services like government services that were run by you know tax money to special interests so in france they were the 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 debt crisis led them to sell off institutions or excuse me to sell off uh, government positions to like aristocratic people like the highest bidder the highest bidder could buy whatever position was in like a crisis and then they would just use that position to enrich themselves. This is exactly what Berlusconi did with the mob. He would, like, put, you know, his mafia friend in charge of... I, I was in Naples in 2007. And it's funny because Moldbug talks in this essay about going to Naples in 2007. And it was a fucking disaster. I mean, it was a straight-up third-world country. I saw that he gave control of garbage pickup and toxic waste removal to the mob. And what happens in these scenarios is that... Um, the people who get the government positions just collects the tax revenue and then don't provide the services and get rich off the money. And this, this is what Brazilification is. Like, this is what, when people say like the Brazilification of America, like this is what it would look like. It would look like illegitimate people just leaving huge swaths of the country, like unconnected to government services whatsoever. But you know, in the French Revolution and in Italy, the thing is, is the people who were being left out, hung out to dry, were people who were actually paying taxes, people who were actually working. Um, and the mafia was doing things like, you know, dumping barrels of toxic waste in, into the Mediterranean, into the Adriatic Sea and things like that. So, like, the only reason why this got fixed, though, was because of the intervening body of the EU. So in Schmidt's estimation, right, the EU would be where sovereignty lied. And the EU was who decided, uh, who decided, I think this happened in like 2009. Um, the EU was, was the one who decided the exception. And then I'll quickly just mention COVID real quick, uh, because COVID was, the pandemic was supposedly the exception, right? And we already had like an executive figure in place, the president. COVID reveals to you where sovereignty lies, Sovereignty did not lie in the president. He did not take control of that. This like shadowy body of, you know, and I don't mean shadowy in the sense that they're like behind closed doors and they're like, um, they're not like out in the open. But I mean, like the federal government is like this, what's the word I'm looking for here? This like, uh, it's like this, this amorphous figure. Right? Where you don't see one person like this one person runs this and this one person runs that. It's like the Senate. It's like a group of people. Uh uh it's and it's like this like interplay, right? This dynamic system of the interplay of like the different arms of government. So sovereignty clearly lies in what Schmidt was talking about, like the deistic mechanistic like uh movement of the state. Like, like what the fuck is um what the fuck is uh fauci anyway like what even is he is he's not like a lawgiver right whatever he is he's not a lawgiver and bill gates isn't even like a government employee and these were the people making the decisions you know uh cuomo stepped up and became like the lawgiver at the time right so sovereignty my point being is that sovereignty clearly did not lie in trump and it clearly did not lie in the executive so anyway that's a bit of a digression um from schmidt i hope i've made it clear i want uh i want the reading group people to come in first to talk about this but i see fisher and athenian in the audience and ancient um you know we don't have to stay strictly on moldbug i'd be more than happy to discuss schmidt a lot more because clearly i left a lot out but um hopefully it's clear that moldbug's conception of progressivism as an evolution of of protestantism he didn't just pull it out of his ass there's like a long tradition of political theology is political philosophy talking about uh, the state as a religion a B that his concept of like the crisis of democracy, the leftward drift right comes from Schmidt. The crisis of democracy comes from Schmidt. The exception comes from Schmidt, the ex- exception being the sovereign debt crisis. And then the uh, revelation of sovereignty and the intervention of like a tyrant stepping in to fix the problem and end democracy, also comes from Schmidt. It's all just updated to our 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 he's kind of like um he's kind of like uh, extrapolating out. Moldbug is extrapolating out. This is why I follow Moldbug so closely by the way. Because he doesn't make shit up. He doesn't like take what his ideal is or what he thinks like the best thing is and like say this is what we should do and then argue really strongly for that. He makes he he creates an entire political system that he then uses to extrapolate about the future to say that like this is where it's all going to lead right i don't know if it will come to that but it has come to that multiple times in the future in in the past so he 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 gains legitimacy of his argument from real world examples that he points out repeatedly throughout the text where what he's describing is going to happen in the future right and i've had charles haywood on my show twice and we argued about this a lot and I'm more on Moldbug's side than Haywood's side because Haywood thinks it's going to happen soon and he thinks there's going to be a catastrophic collapse, system failure prior to the restoration. I'm more with Moldbug, and which I think it's going to happen farther into the future. Um, probably it might happen in this 10 years. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to happen in the 2020s. Um, and it doesn't necessarily need to be a full system failure collapse that we then, uh, something else grows up out of the rubble. It could be a transfer of power. It could be a peaceful transfer of power. Anyway, so that's that. Uh, Fisher and Athenian and ancient, um, you know, o- other people also are more than welcome to request the mic, but I know these guys have read Schmidt and can uh, can elaborate on what I've said. Necro, go ahead, brother.
1: Uh, hi, I, uh, can you hear me, first of all? I can hear you very well, and I'm happy to see you here. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm glad I can make it. Well, I haven't read Schmidt, uh, but um, you've definitely piqued my interest and I definitely want to read him uh, sometime soon. Uh, so I can't really comment on him, but I can comment a bit on what you've said about Moldbug. Uh, and I want to uh, start by talking about what you were just saying about how you don't necessarily see his vision of how things are going to change as uh, likely or um, necessarily functional. And to address that, I wanted to point out the general purpose of the open letter, uh, because what he's done in this, um, this book is, first of all, um, he points out that, obviously, that things are bad. And then he describes in excellent detail why things are bad. And, you know, it, it, if, if he'd stopped there, it would have been interesting enough. Uh, but, you know, anybody can comment to some extent, oh, yeah, things are bad, uh, we have bad rulers, uh, government is is being mismanaged, uh, but he also sort of moved into the the unknown beyond that and
0: do you mean, provided you alternative. Do you mean the, the future? Alternative. Or the unknown politically? Or do you mean, in, like...
1: It, it, it's sort of, okay, it's sort of the both, uh, both, because consider the point of view of the person reading this, like I was when I first read it many years ago that sort of person probably cannot actually imagine what life would be like in a system other than the one in which he lives because it is never discussed in education. It is never discussed in the political for public forum. Uh, that never, that idea, that possibility never comes into it, into his life. So what, Part of, I think, one of the key insights of Moldbug, the 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 the, uh, founding stones, is that things don't have to be this way. And in providing this alternative, and he goes very much in detail in order to make it an actual alternative. You know, with the whole thing about giving voting shares to pilots and things like that. It's not necessarily, I think, to say that that particular vision is the vision that he um, uh, wants to happen. It's not just about, it's not about advocating for that. It is about constructing an alternative that people can actually imagine and compare with. He uses
0: hypotheticals to kind of prove his point. Like he said, what Necro was referring to, for those who haven't read it is he says like, who are the because he he wants there to be like a return to the like aristocratic form of representative government and he's like okay so we can't but you know the big problem with democracy is universal suffrage and he says we can't necessarily go to this new system overnight but maybe we can like restrict voting to certain people and he's like well who do we pick and he's like okay well let's pick pilots doctors and cops and, you know, he makes an argument for why he picks those three. They're kind of arbitrary, but, yeah, he's trying to – he's using a hypothetical to prove a point.
1: Yeah, the point is to, is, to, is to give something as an alternative so that it's not just an empty, empty words about how we need to tear this down and not provide any alternative. He gives that as well so you're not left uh, uh, in, a, in a nihilistic position, so to speak. So I, I think I think the actual mechanisms of change in the proposed government are less important than the overarching principles that he is disseminating. Say that one more time. So the the, the specific mechanisms that he is describing, such as the pilot, such as the receiver. Such as all of, or, you know, all of these little intricacies, is less important than the general argument that things are bad. Things can be changed. Um, the here's what a, another system could look like. The, the, the this this system he 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 puts forward again with the receiver, with the pilots, and all this is not the end point. It's not the goal of the the book. It's a part. It's a cog in 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 the book, providing a a different goal, which is to bring someone from the darkness into the light.
0: Yeah, I wish I uh, I wish I had refreshed myself on the uh, gentle introduction because he he elaborates more. I was actually I said this last time, but the gentle introduction is in some ways like a reiteration and a he's he sort of like clarifies a lot of this. Um, and he uses sort of different terms. He sort of makes it like a little bit more sophisticated of an argument. This reads very comprehensive, and it, it reads like a unto itself, a piece unto itself. But when, then when you combine it with more of his other writing, you can see mm. how he like updates it and makes it more sophisticated over time.
1: Uh, Go ahead. Also, gentle, gentle, gentle introduction definitely is not a gentle introduction.
0: Uh, yeah. This, this, this is more of a gentle introduction, honestly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because that's sort of the, the the point of it is to uh, build up the foundation, like you like he's building a house. Well, rather than presenting you with the house full on.
0: Well, lunk in appellation. Why don't you? Uh, I'll I'll try to pull some stuff directly from Moldbug's text. If you'd like to, uh, if you'd like to add anything to what I said. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so th- uh
2: this is a, a little bit off off topic uh but just to take it back to what you were saying earlier about um Schmidt influencing uh Moldbug and um you know I I, I have uh actually read Schmidt beyond um and dreams uh post and in your talk today but one thing that I was really thinking about uh was um uh, the connection between sort of the, um, the deist conception of government where, you know, it's set into motion with a set of, you know, rules and those forward mechanistically into the future. Uh, that really reminded me of, uh, one of Mulbug's stated influences, uh, Thomas Carlisle and, uh, his idea about, uh, government by steam. And, uh, I, I've been thinking about it and really. That just seems like the, the same idea, um, t- to me, like, uh, and I wonder if um, Schmidt was influenced by Carlisle at all. So I don't know. Uh, what, do you, what do you guys think about yeah, that? Yeah, I
0: should, I should. I need to read Moldbug's piece on Carlisle. I don't have any insight on that, but Schmidt does have a pretty comprehensive knowledge of the French Revolution, as I'm sure all political thinkers did at the time. But I know Carlisle was most well-known for his book on the French Revolution. So we have some Carlisle people in the audience who who are going to come up, so they might be able to give us more insight on that.
2: Yeah, I, I haven't read Carlyle directly either, so yeah.
0: Could you well, you? Mold, Moldbug there? is a good um, font of, of authors who were once obscure when he was writing, who are no longer as obscure, especially on the right, um, for you to go look into. So, you know, I, as, I, as I said, I had some familiarity with Schmidt and I had read one chapter of this book, but, uh, you know, Moldbug's the reason I went to go read him more comprehensively. Go ahead, Necro. Uh, Lunk, sorry. Yeah, the point that was made before about um,
3: how Moldbug kind of presents all these different options um, is very true. He's definitely not married to any one course of action. Obviously, he, he puts forward the sovereign debt crisis as his uh, preferred method but he also says, you know, in various places in the open letter and the general intro that, um, uh, a military coup or, uh, pa- direct papal rule. Like these things would also in the net be beneficial for, uh, most countries on earth at the same time though. And this kind of gets back to, to Schmidt's critique. He's very particular about certain things. Um, Namely, he spends a lot of time in the general intro, especially, and then also somewhat in the open letter, talking about why he's, maybe to use a bit of a loaded term, uh, an anti-fascist. He really hates fascism. He thinks it's really stupid and unworkable. And the reason he thinks this, and this is kind of where it gets to Schmidt, is it's too democratic. His problem with, with fascism and fascist movements is that they're these, he refers to them, Hitler specifically as an abortion of democracy, where the problem with these kinds of movements is that they are actually way too interested in public opinion and propaganda, and that they derive their legitimacy from the will of the people, which is exactly the problem that Schmidt's identifying.
0: Yeah, no, that is a really good insight. Uh, Spergler left, but we had a whole episode about this, this, this discussion, because my argument, I'm not trying to derail what you're saying. My argument was that uh, I think that I actually reject this this uh, critique because I don't think the National Socialists had any other choice. They had to be democratic to get to where they were. And Moldbug argues that. You're bringing up a point that I was going to make that I think it's in the 13th chapter, um, Rules for Radicals or What is to be Done. That's the 12th and 13th chapter. Tactics and structures of any pr- prospective restoration—that's thirteen. One of these chapters, anyway. Sorry, he says that uh, we are against democracy, but the only way to get where we want to go, uh, we have to use democracy because any other tactic is uh, being accounted for by the regime. The regime exists in order to stymie or stop or block or in other in other ways uh, stifle any other form of political action other than democracy. So it's really interesting to me, <laughs> you know, and I said the same thing about Spengler. It's really interesting to me that this guy says that we need to have uh, this tyrant common rule, but we can't do it like the, the fascists did because they're too democratic. But uh, then he goes and argues that we basically need to use their same tactics. Um, he, he's got other critiques of the fascists in this book that are worth talking about that we already did talk about. But then Spengler is like, uh, oh, well, the only hope is a Caesar figure. Right. And Spengler's discussion of the Caesar figure is the same thing as Schmidt's discussion of uh, uh, the sovereign and the, uh, you know, the decision and the exception. But Schmidt and Spengler wrote about the same time, both political theology and Decline of the West, volume two, which is where he talks about the Caesar came out in 1922. But anyway, my point is. Spengler says the only solution to like the crisis of democracy is the Caesar figure. And then a Caesar figure presents himself and Spengler, you know, says, Oh, well, no, this guy's not the Caesar because he's too democratic. It's the same exact critique, uh, which I reject basically, but go on. I I totally interrupted you. Sorry, please continue. No, that was pretty much it. I was just
3: drawing the, 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 common thread between Moldbug and Schmidt here is that they identify the problems being with democracy first and foremost, Um, And now what the thing that Moldbug is kind of confusing is that he identifies the same problem, uh, which is democracy. But in Moldbug, there is no that I can see there's really no solution at all to this problem of the metaphysical that Schmidt is talking about, where the, the actual root of the problem is this infusion of natural science and deistic theology into the political for Moldbug, His case for monarchy is purely mechanistic. It's, it's very like engineering brained, um, which is why he takes so much of a influence from another guy. I was going to bring up named Robert Filmer, who he mentions early on in the open letter, whose case for monarchy is basically biological. It's, it's biological as well as religious, but he's sort of the, the, the furthest, Right extremist of the case for divine right monarchy, where his his argument is basically that divine right monarchy or, or rule by patriarchs is directly a function of rule by fathers over their families, and you go back in history all the way to Adam. Fathers rule their families, families grow into nations, and the patriarch remains over his whole family, and this becomes the king, and that's where the king derives his. That's legitimacy. extremely interesting. For Moldbug, it's purely utilitarian. It's purely just we need to structure our sa- our society this way because it's the way that a joint stock corporation works. And those are the fun the, like every organization on Earth is pyramid in structure with one guy at the top. That's how everything gets done. He's looking at it from a mechanistic focus instead of a uh, uh, any really concern for where is legitimacy derived for Moldbug. It's just a fact sovereignty is held as a brute fact it's not it doesn't need to be derived from anywhere as it
0: does for somebody like yeah Schmitt no i think it's like- whole point though is that it's no longer like derived from the divine it's no longer derived from a religious source and it is it becomes a brute fact over time like all this stuff gets dissolved all this all this like metaphysical religious stuff gets dissolved into like the machine of like the institutions of the state, which is why he was saying like the de- the deistic principle. Uh, excuse me, the deistic uh, perspective on the way the universe like operates with without God's hand intervening is the same way. Like he says, sociology reduces. bat talks about this a lot in his episode. Uh, he makes much of this. Sociology reduces politics to a scientific method. Where instead of like declaring what the truth is, you're testing a hypothesis and you can never actually say what the truth is. You can only like approximate the truth and then it reduces politics to this like process to this scientific process. Right. So I don't think I mean, I, what you're saying is true, but I think it's in Schmidt, too, is what I'm saying. I don't think Schmidt is saying that the exception that uh, reveals the location of sovereignty and um brings forth a decider has anything metaphysical to it or has anything like, uh, yeah, metaphysical. I don't think it has anything like, um, supernatural to it. And he's not saying it is a miracle. He likens it to a miracle, to the miracle. You know what I'm saying? I, yeah, but he still
3: derives it. He still derives the source of the problem as being the, the theological break where he says the, um, I can't remember the exact line, but it's something to the effect of um, when you get rid of the tutelary government, or actually, I think it was Nietzsche that said this, actually, when you get rid of the, 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 the idea of the tutelary government and religion, these things go hand in hand. And when the religious hierarchical structure of sovereignty derived from God is compromised, the political realm is soon to follow. That's kind of the case that Schmidt is making. So my po- regardless of whether Schmidt, you know, personally cares about the, the, the metaphysical uh, aspect of sovereignty, I think he's still deriving the problem at the same spot, which is that the metaphysical is first compromised
0: and the political follows. I mean- it does make sense, but I don't think he's saying the metaphysical is... I don't think he's saying it's a metaphysical problem. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think he's saying... I think he's saying the problem... He's... Dis- <laughs> I guess that's what that's what I have to say about that. I don't think he's saying that it is it is a metaphysical problem. It's a real problem. The crisis is the deferment of the decision. I don't know. Did you have a response? Because I... I mean I think we're
3: saying the same thing. It's just a question of of the sort of genealogy of the idea. Like if I read him correctly, he's tracing democratic politics to theology and deistic theology and the influence of natural science on political thought. So he may not it may not be a metaphysical problem for him, but it stems from a, a change in thought of the metaphysical.
0: You know no, what I mean? yeah, that I mean yes, that is what the whole chapter on political theology is about. It's a change in thought. Right. Yes, it's a change in the conceptualization of the political and a change in the conceptualization of the divine. And I've actually found um, I found this in Novola. He talks about it uh, as the, 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 the slide from tradition into modernity. He traces this change, this change of the conception of the law and the change of the conception of the divine. Uh, And this source of like, you know, the substance or the metaphysical power of God, um, it sort of tracks along with like the source of political power as well. And the question is, is like, do the people in different eras conceptualize the divine differently because of the way like the political is conceptualized and because of the way like the material, you know, mechanism of the, the not just the state, but like. Society in general, all all aspects of society, is the way it becomes more. This is the this is a fundamental question: is the way society complexifies over time the thing that results in to like the materialist worldview that uh, removes God and the divine from the people's like uh, mindset, and does that affect belief or does the conception of God affect the way they administer the state. Nietzsche's Death of God, right? Uh, we have to understand Moldbug's conception of the cathedral in context of Nietzsche's Death of God. So Nietzsche's, de- Nietzsche's Death of God sa- is, it, it says without, and this is what I believe too. Says without in in no uncertain terms that the institution of the the church. Is shaken by many earthquakes until it finally collapses into ruin. And the source of power, right? Power emanates from the church and orders society in a certain way. Even the monarch has to do certain things. There was a German monarch, I bet Fisher knows exactly who I'm talking about, who had to like crawl, you know, to Rome to like beg forgiveness and he was wearing a hair shirt. I forgot exactly the details, but he was a German King. Right. So historians like to point this out to say that like the church had more power than even the monarchy at a certain point in history. Right. So the death of God is that now like the source of um, the revelation that I was talking about that is deferred through the vote. Right. The source of truth that we have to like deliberate on to come to, to decide like what the law is the church used to have a hand in that and the church used to like give people roles in society to fulfill. Uh, The death of God means that like that breaks down and it's no longer like a reverent, it's no longer a power source that people revere. Um, And he specifically points out, for example, that like uh, under Lutheranism, like under Luther priests could marry and have sex. And like, this is like what the common man does. So there's nothing about, like, the the preacher that elevates him above, like, the common man, um, whereas, like, the priest as, like, a source of power is, like, an exception. He's an exception. He's the one who, like, communicates God to the people. He's the mediator. This breaks down, and this power source gets, like, dissolved in the people, right? So then you read the Bible on your own, and you come up with your own decision. This is, like, the genealogy and, like, the the evolution of the conception of God and also, your relationship to, like, moral laws. It's no longer, like, com- emanating from this power source, right? So, um, Nietzsche, I mean, excuse me, Moldbug calling it the cathedral, it's not arbitrary, and it's not stupid, and it's not obfuscatory either. He's evoking this insight of Nietzsche's, which he elaborates on greatly in the gay science, right, which is where he first says God is dead. Um, and we killed him. This is how we killed him, right? He's definitely talking about the Protestant Reformation specifically. Uh, So it's not, you know, one of the critiques of Moldbug is that like calling it the cathedral is like obfuscating, you know, communism and Judaism and things like that. And even if he wasn't doing that, why would you call it the cathedral when we're not a Catholic country? We're a Protestant country. If you're talking about Protestantism, why would you call it the cathedral? He's saying the cathedral is the source of power, the cathedral is the source of information. Uh, the cathedral is the source of truth. It's the body that determines what truth is and, like, mediates it to the people. That's why he calls it the cathedral, to evoke the idea that the church is an institution of power. It's not just an institution of grace. It's also an institution for ordering society. Um, so I could, for, I could go with that tangent further, but let's... Uh, I think um Bones had her hand up the longest and then Necro and Appalachian.
4: Hi, thank you, Astro. Let me walk inside. It's raining. I'm sitting on the back porch. Um Yeah, um, thank you for letting me talk. Um what I wanted to say was on the topic of religion, um politics being a form of religion. And what is it that makes it not purely material and also metaphysical, I would say would be the contention that both, whatever you want to call it. um, I think Bap has said also um, um, zero HP Lovecraft in his last trilogy of essays has called the American civic religion and contrast that with more traditional religions um, is that they, they stake a claim to goodness. So that's the, the famous, you know, is ought um, problem. So they say that they're good. Um, and we say that we're good and it's not just in a purely material sense. And, you know, it's not just in a survival and reproduction sense. Um, we, we truly say that we're good. And and how do we say that? Um, You have to say it by an appeal to objective truth. Um, Objective truth being more than just the person in charge says what's true and we all just go along with it. Um, Postmodernists really believe that. They're slaves to power. But I think that people on the right, as much as they can use power and should use power, they appeal to something beyond just merely whoever has, you know, the biggest hammer or whatever. Um, and, and an objective truth is something that you're ultimately going to have to take as a matter of faith. I think that if you're a good person and you have some goodness in your heart that you're still not afraid of accessing, you know that objective truth is real. And there are a lot of different paths to it. You can use logic, you can use you know, faith. Obviously, there's it's gonna be an act of faith no matter what. You can use feelings, um, you can use tradition, you can use, you know, revealed truth through the church. But ultimately, I think to be right wing in any sense, you have to believe in objective truth. And, you know, right wing postmodernist like moldbug, um, they, I think they really try to, to get to their point with materialism as much as possible, but that argument that our side is right and why it's right is ultimately going to come down to faith. And that's kind of I think what makes our religion better than their religion because we are right because I think you can really feel in your heart and your body that.
0: Yeah, but um, be, I, the thing is is that so having the truth doesn't mean you're going to win though. I don't think the, I think the truth is overvalued. As like a tactic. Um, People on the right say that like we're going to win because we have the truth and reality always comes down on the side of truth. Well, that's not true when you're living in a corrupt society. So I don't like I don't value the truth in the same way. I, I value it metaphysically, but I don't value it as like I mean, it sounds to me like that's what you're saying, right?
4: Well, no, I'm just saying that ultimately, okay, fine. If wokeness is a religion or American civic religion is a religion and, you know, any other political philosophy has to have religious elements or at least fulfill the psychological needs that religion fulfills, then what is to say that we're better than them? What is to say that if they get their fulfillment by, you know, being trans and destroying yeah, the or whatever? Yeah, that's, but
0: that's true. I agree with you, but it's like it, Mobug doesn't care about that because it doesn't, it doesn't bring us to victory or give us power that you know what i'm saying like
4: no no <laughs> i agree I'm just, i mean you're I just, right and i agree see, with I just you but to say that that might be what way that we we touch the metaphysical or the divine the way that we touch the divine they touch you know who knows satanism or whatever they touch little boys they touch things. little boys
0: is what they do and schmidt <laughs> yeah. schmidt talks about satan actually and he talks about uh how like i didn't actually know this but the communists of the 19th century actually evoke satan and like you know Uh, refer to him as like a source of their like power and legitimacy, which I had no idea. So these guys were like conscientiously like satanic, just like the left is today. All right. A Necro and app had their hands up and then we'll have associated associate go. uh, And Julian's here, but he's not talking, which is fine.
1: Uh, Lots, uh, lots to say, lots of great stuff has just been said. Um, Astral, I think you really hit the nail on the head with what you were talking about. Um,
5: um,
1: I whatever it was that you were talking about at the end about the um, voice of God, I think it was. Sorry, it was a few speeches ago, but I just wanted to <laughs> say that it was it was it was right right on point. And I wanted to add a little comment to that, tying in with what was said earlier about. Uh, the monarch as a, mat- the sonic sovereign as a matter of fact versus sovereign as a metaphysical symbol um, with regards to the concept of the divine right of kings. Now, the divine right of kings has surfaced in a number of ways throughout history, but in in recent history, relatively recent history, it was as a legitimate argument for um monarchist government it was actually brought up as a response to the uh slow decay of monarch's power it was because it used to be right the king is the king and so yes he is he is in, he has a role he does have a role ordained by god but he is the king because he is uh the king it wasn't really more co- much more complicated than that but when that power was threatened then uh, well he's the king because he is actually ordained by god to rule over you that's the divine right of kings And actually, that argument, that cost monarchy more power because that became Vox Populi, Vox Dei. So you're saying, the monarch is saying he is ruling by the voice of God. Well, the voice of the people is the voice of God. That's the only way we can decide that. So that's just a little um, one example of this decay of Cthulhu uh, swimming left.
0: Uh, and that's that's, with reg- that's Schmidt as well. I don't
1: know if you're saying that, but that is that is Schmidt as well. Yeah, yeah, I was. T- yeah, it was. It was about related to what you were talking about with Schmidt. I also wanted to agree with what Lunk was saying about there being a material and a metaphysical side to these things. Uh, Mulbug is um, and has always been a very materially focused person, uh, as as people have already commented, uh, but. Uh, ultimately it's true that you, you can't we're facing both a systemic war and a religious war uh, because the system is shit and the uh, beliefs of the people who run the system are shit and those two things go hand in hand so if you if you fix the system but you don't fix the people in charge then they'll will, they will break the system again and if you fix the people in charge, but you leave the system intact. And this is actually a big part of mold Final point, as I'm just going to draw this together, then the system will end up corrupt, corrupting the society. The people in charge will be replaced, which means, and this is turning to mold concluding. Uh, so the last chapter rules for reactionaries, I think is one of the best chapters he's ever written. Um, He, one of the, 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 there's two central points here. And the first one is that if you are truly right wing and you truly want to fix things, you can't rely on, uh, you can't just take over the system and keep it running. Because there's a reason that the people and the beliefs that are currently in charge have uh, been successful in the system. It's because the system is for them, it was, it was built on uh, uh, left-wing principles, uh, less left-wing than it is now, and it's only decayed over time. So he says, if you're going to win, then you have to go in with a plan to fix the system from the ground up. Um, You can't... And he, 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 he makes a comment about the victory is when democracy votes out democracy. So um, that is, is. I think that is, I see this a lot. I see this in, in my my countrymen a lot recently with this National uh, uh, Conservative Conference. And there's, uh, I, I get this feeling that a lot of people think, well, if only we can vote in a base right-wing government, then that's going to solve the problems. And the truth is, well, yeah, it could fix things on the short term, but if you keep the system that allows Cthulhu to swim left, then Cthulhu will keep swimming left. And and so you really have to go in with a, a, a method of fixing the system. And the second point... Oh, um, almost done. Yeah, no, please and the, continue. And the second of his main points um, in his final chapter, uh, which ties into what Bones was saying, is and what you were saying is about the truth uh and i want to 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 defend both him and this idea um a little bit because at bones i think you you're right that he spends a lot of time working on materialist foundations but and this may be a little sort of armchair psychoanalyst i have always gotten the impression that if there's one thing Moldbug cares about it is finding the truth he is motivated by truth and i think that is something that a lot of people on the right today are motivated by just like you're saying is we live in a society founded on lies and he talks about this this um in his chapter i have a quote right here he says to be right when the cathedral is wrong is to demonstrate that we live under a system of government which is bound together by the same glue that held up communism, lies. You do not need a triple-digit IQ to know that a regime held up by lies is doomed. You also do not need a triple-digit IQ to help bring down a doomed regime. And what he is saying here is that actually in, in this, in our situation, the truth is a weapon because the enemy is founds their power on lies everything is lies the, the whole covid business was lies the whole the whole um fake scientific establishment everything is built on lying to people and controlling their perception of the world and because that is what their power is built on if you defeat the lie then you undermine their power and that is something that's already started to happen since since Mulberg wrote this this uh this uh book uh so it it, it actually does to uh the truth does bring a i i, I in, don't in that sense
0: i know that yarvin has said that later in his career and i know that he he said on my show i think he said it on my show he said somewhere that um he ascribes to BAP's faction of truth. He likes that BAP wanted to call the right the faction of truth, but I don't think that's the argument he's making in the open letter that we need truth as a weapon. He, he talks in the open letter about um, like using the internet to uh, excavate old texts, but we don't excavate those old texts. And if you hear what I'm doing in the background, I, this is the portion of the show in which I'm pouring an alcoholic beverage I'm going to begin to chain, <laughs> chain smoke cigarettes, and we are certainly going to fly way off topic very, very shortly. But um, he doesn't say that you excavate these old texts to like find the truth. He he excavates these old texts to explore alternative systems of government, which were suppressed. Disconnected. Which were suppressed after World War II on purpose by the communists and the liberal regime in America, which is also communist. <coughs> so I wouldn't say that that's a, a rally cry to truth. Oh, and then yeah. somewhere in one of the later chapters, maybe the chapter you just talked about, he said we have to use democracy to like vote, vote the regime out. Uh, he, that is also not a call to truth. And then the sovereign debt crisis isn't a call to truth either. So while I get what you two are saying, and i don't even necessarily disagree because like the fight against the tranny thing is is truth the steve Saylor's uh statistical like uh 1350 posting is is truth the immigration the problems that immigration causes for america is is truth all this is truth but i don't see ne uh moldbug appealing to truth as a tactic in this essay
1: did you um do you uh, remember the 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 very last section of the whole book. Yeah, v- is actually where he's talking about. You know, vaguely.
0: I, so I, I should the- read that again. I, I admit that that one is kind of like I kind of like sped through that to finish it, and then I went and reread <sighs> a bunch, and I didn't rewrite. Re- I,
1: I, I, go ahead. So 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 this is sort of so he this section. The purpose of this section is not new or novel or unprecedented in the essay as a whole, because because the 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 thing that it's addressing is the litany of lies that he has um demonstrated to the reader that they are being told by the regime that's the whole like first first half of the book is talking about the the world of lies that we live in and his answer to that is uh well he gives the example or he he proposes a system called uh a of, so here I've got it, I've got it for you, which is where you can directly, um, directly compare the the lies the lies to the truth, or you, well, rather, rather, I should say, you can directly compare one side of an argument to another side and decide the truth for yourself. And the reason he says he he believes this is possible, how important, should I say, is that because the regime is built on lies. So, so let me, let, I will use COVID as an example. The reason the regime was able to be so outrageous, so, you know, in, 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 in COVID, you know, you know lockdowns, um, vaccinations, forced mask, masking, this whole business, the reason they pulled that off is because everybody believed them when they said it was the right thing to do. If people didn't believe that, if people thought they were full of shit, then then that okay, well then whether it they would have had they then what were they gonna do, right? It's if if people believe they're full of shit, then they've got nothing because the whole the whole construction of the 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 progressive state is around the cathedral it's around the dissemination of information it's around the specifically the centralized control of information and if that is disrupted if that power is weakened as it has begun to do through the internet through social media then their power is is weakened because they rule by controlling people's minds
0: Yes, okay, I agree with this. Um, we'll have to circle back to this. I'll have to reread the last chapter. I just skimmed it while you were talking, and I like didn't highlight any of it. But um, the regime's legitimacy decreases, and therefore it asserts their power more nakedly. That's how I see it. Look, Julian just contacted me. He has to get going. He's always got good stuff to say when we talk about mold book, so I'm going to let him jump in front of people next because he's got to go. Hey, Astro, can you guys hear me? Yeah,
6: you're good.
7: Yeah, you're
6: good. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to say that I, uh, a, a lot of people in here have heard me defend Moldbug, and I've gotten into a lot of arguments, but I, I think that Moldbug is possibly the most important political writer alive purely because of the fact that he's an atheist and he's saying everything that he's saying. I, I think it was uh, Bones before that was m- referencing objective truth and religion. I think that I think that Moldbug's atheism for him as a thinker is his greatest failing and it's it's the in my opinion it's the area where he's totally wrong and because of the fact that he's an atheist his writing is perfect uh, if if he was not an atheist I think that his writing would effectively be garbage it, it wouldn't really amount to anything there are a lot of writers to have been anti democracy or advocated for monarchy or something like it from a religious perspective, but the fact that he is able to do this, I think, perfectly as an atheist makes his argument. And I think uh, ne- Necro Necro Duna was uh saying something about his interest in truth, and yeah, I think there's something to that as well. There's something about Moldbug that causes him to be singularly obsessed with truth in his writing in a way that is not obviously religious in any way, that separates him from other people. But I think, again, I mean, I'm just going to sound like a religious whack job or something when I say this, but I think that this is effectively like what he's supposed to be doing as a person. And it's the reason that he's, uh, his writing is so effective and good overall that Somehow he's just maybe personally blocked from seeing this, but I, I think that there's something in his brain that causes him to chase all of these ideas to the correct
0: conclusions. Well, what the fuck, man? Am I just am I just an asshole? I ju- I just an asshole?
2: <laughs>
0: and I hold on. <laughs> I- you got to mute Julian. Uh, I just kicked him out by accident. Uh, am I just an asshole? And I don't see I don't see all this stuff about truth in in the open letter. Or are you guys getting it from elsewhere in Moldbug? I don't know. I reread, like, four chapters for this, but it might not have been one of the ones. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, man. I, I mean, maybe it's because Moldbug says he's okay with, like, gay people and trannies and, like, drugs and shit that I just don't feel like he hammers, home, hammers on about the truth and the importance of the truth. But listen, Associated is new uh, to the space, I've spoken to him before. I've been on his pod. He's got a great pod. You should all subscribe to it. And, uh, yeah, this was a, this was a space. The series of spaces born out of a group chat reading group. I've been pretty derelict in my duties since the last space in the group chat. I've barely contributed, but, um, we're going to do more of these. There's going to be more Twitter spaces run by group chats that discuss passage press publications. Uh, Hopefully forever. And Associate is welcome in the chat, but he's not part of the chat. So uh, typically, people who are part of the group chat get the mic first for the first hour or hour and a half, and then we open it up. So since uh, since we're at that point now, we will uh, we'll start opening up and welcome our first non-group chat member. Julian's not part of the group chat either, but he had to leave, so I let him jump in. Um, I say that, though, associate, not to call you out (laughs) and make you feel put on the spot. Rather, to tell the audience how this is structured and um, what these Passage Press spaces are going to be structured like. And I offered to – our group chat is full. I offered to make a second one, but I only got, like, two people who said they wanted in. So if I can get, like, ten people to say they want a second Passage Press group chat, you can DM me and I'll, I'll open it. Uh, anyway, go on. That was a long-winded way of doing a little bit of maintenance here and just letting people know what we're what we're about. Uh, associates, great to have you. I don't think I've had you on a space before, so I'm happy to see you. And please go ahead. Uh, forgive my inter- interruptions.
7: Yeah, no worries. Um, thank you for that uh, preamble. I I just wanted to ask. You know, you pointed out the hypocrisy or the apparent contradiction of uh, Moldbug saying that the the fascists in germany the nazis were too democratic but then also saying that you know democratic uh systems are what we have to rely on for for any kind of caesar and i was curious and i guess this relates to the truth point if you think that's a contradiction he hasn't noticed or given that he's smart is he sort of bullshitting and just saying that you know i have to disavow nazis uh for the purpose of writing this letter to progressives but um you know, So I'll, I'll dispense with them, but obviously I'm I'm describing something similar. I'm, I'm uh, curious for your reaction.
0: That's a that. fantastic question. Can we couch that for a minute and get back to it? You're going to be around for a little while? Yeah, yeah, g- yeah give me yeah, a minute, sure. but um, I have an answer. Uh, my answer is I think he's being disingenuous uh, for multiple reasons. I think he legitimately doesn't like the Nazis, but I also think he knows he can't endorse them. And I also think he knows that they would have killed him if he was in the Nazi regime. So that's why he doesn't like them. But I think he's being disingenuous because they actually have a good model. Well, actually, they had a good model for their time. I don't think they have a good model for today. And he's the one who made me see that. I've gone on to read... uh, What the fuck did I read? It's basically communist propaganda, this book. The rise and fall of the Third Reich. And uh, I think Moldbug's correct. I don't think their model can help us today. But that is a very long discussion. I have to do something really quick while other people talk. So uh, I'll call on you again later to bring this up. And I'll I'll explain what I mean a little bit more. Um, I can't remember if Lunk or App put their hands up first. So we'll go Lunk first and then App. Okay, so a couple things
3: that were just brought up I think are all kind of related to each other. Um, The question of, you know, Moldbug's view of truth uh, and Moldbug's view of the Nazis. I think the key distinction here to be made with Moldbug is that he, he takes a different approach to things that are tactics versus things that are sources of authority. Okay, Moldbug's treatment of truth, he... Bones is right that he cares very greatly about truth. One of my
0: favorite mold bug. All right. Well, look, I got to interrupt that... you to apologize to Bones. Everyone disagrees with me and everybody agrees with Bones. So I'm just going to concede the point of Bones and ask her for forgiveness. But go ahead, Lunk. Well, no, I think I, I mean, Astral, you're right. in a,
3: You're you're right in a sense, I think. But uh, the distinction I'm making is, um, well, I was saying one of my favorite mold bug is where he says the truth is something that it rings like a bell when you hit it with the back of a knife and he paints these very simple pictures of history that make complete sense. He, he lays before you like a huge part of the open letter is just him laying out all of these contradictions of progressive history and, and just showing you these things that don't quite fit. And then he gives you an alternative that makes way more sense. And it sort of flow. He, I think he uses this phrase on the BAP episode, the, the Caribbean rhythms episode, the, the past flows into the present like an artery of truth where you can directly trace past events to present situations. And the last chapter of the open letter to uh Necrod's point, he's talking about the need for this sort of alternative Wikipedia, which he calls Resartis, where it's like a platform where you compare cathedral claims on their like most sacred dogmas of climate change and, uh, uh, human neurological uniformity and all these things and you compare them to non-cathedral claims and allow people to see the difference and he he advocates this as a tactic because it for moldbug this hypothetical government that he's creating in his manifesto its source of authority is not democracy its source of authority is not that people voted it in that people voted it in is merely the vehicle by which it gets there, and this is the problem. This is his problem with fascists, his problem with anti-communists alike. His problem is that for them, democracy is not merely a means; it's also a legitimator. For the Nazis, their public, like image was that they were the voice of the people, and they devoted great time to propaganda. He, he calls Goebbels the Pope of Germany. And they, they put a lot of effort into into consensus forming and sort of artificial uh, uh, truth making that he sees as being, you know, fake. And that's his problem with it. It, it. It's it's the same problem he has with democracy. And he considers Hitler and the Nazis to be the rightmost edge of Tory democracy. And again, I, I have such prob- major
0: problems with this. Not you, but Moldbuck. I agree, I agree well, with yeah. your, your conceptualization and characterization of his position, but his position, it's bullshit. <laughs> but go on. <laughs> well,
3: okay, you also did say before that, that he's being disingenuous. I doubt this. I, I really doubt this. I mean, if Moldbug can be credited with one thing, it's that he's not afraid of ideas. I mean, I think if Moldbug was secretly fond of the Nazis, he would say so. Um, I have no reason to doubt this. He's never given any indication that he would. And and also to the point about why he holds these certain sort of progressive planks, um, why he doesn't have a problem with like gender stuff and, and gay marriage. It's not that he doesn't care about truth. He doesn't see these things as being violations of truth because he's an atheist. He doesn't. He sees progressive and Whig history as being a lie. He doesn't see. For instance, gay marriage as being a lie. He just sees it as being, you know, he's a libertarian in his sort of in his sort of personality and his sort of uh, outlook on on personal behavior, he still maintains this sort of libertarian view of things. Okay. Um, but that means he doesn't uh, care about truth in these ways. He's just he's a pro he's he's taking truth to mean a different set okay, of these things. these are
0: all great insights. This is this is great insight, and I agree with you. But I think Moldbug is too smart to not see the, the, the legitimacy. I uh, can't believe I'm saying this. I think he's too smart that he, to, to not see the, the legitimacy of the Nazis because some of these guys, like uh, I think his name's Ernst von Solomon and uh, Spengler himself, who wasn't an aristocrat, they take the same argument uh, that you just laid out against um, the Nazis and other people do too. I believe they even tried to assassinate him. Partially on these grounds, but they also I think it had something to do with they thought he was going to lose the war in the east, but they had the same argument they did support him, however, for a long time, I think because they saw that that's where the country was going, and that he was the best person for them to support. but that's not my point. My point is is that we you know moldbug this this essay is very racist, right we live in a condition of universal suffrage in which anyone who comes to this country and gets citizenship can get a vote. So in order to try to like unify the vote to, to some sort of regime that will be antithetical to, to the current regime is impossible because you can't get all these people on the same page and you can't rally them behind like any sort of racialist, um, uh, uh, agenda. You can rally them as Trump showed behind a nationalist agenda, which had elements of racism in it, but it wasn't a directly racist thing. I don't actually think Trump is racist in the same way as that, as like a white nationalist would be. I think he's happy to have the votes of brown people. I think I think he would take them, even if he does have some racist tendencies. Whereas in Germany, the the situation was totally different. They didn't have like hordes of brown people and immigrants and former slaves who were given the vote, who were like uh, who were who were um, enfranchised with the vote. So it's a totally different condition that they were in that we're in. So to apply what they did to America, this is where I agree with you to apply what they did to America. You can't do it. You can't transpose their conditions onto ours and say that their path forward will be our path forward. It doesn't mean it was the wrong path forward in Germany necessarily. Now, some people, like my friend Spurgler, who's not here, says clearly it was the wrong path forward because they lost the war. But it was the correct path forward to seizing power, though. It was the correct path forward to to replacing the regime, replacing Weimar, getting rid of the communists, and taking power. Um, So that's where I disagree. I'm not really disagreeing with your characterization. Your characterization was excellent. I am disagreeing with Moebuck, and this is why I think he's being disingenuous, because I think he's too smart not to see what I just pointed out. And what I just pointed out is basically my answer to associate that I was going to give. Um, L- Lunk, I'm, I'm interested in your rejoinder, but Apps had his hand up so long I think we should let him come in quick real- first. Sorry. Oh, man. I fucking hit... I I, yeah, I hit so. this Bacardi really hard really fast. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, so I think in... In, I think he actually answers this, and you are, sort of, um, with regards to uh, you know, his, uh, him saying he wants democracy to get us there, but also decrying the Nazis. Um, and basically, the issue is Moldbug wants to live in a Type 3 society. The Nazis were a Type 1 society, mean, he uses them as the example. And that is basically a restatement of his problem with them.
0: Right, they have to
2: continually commit psyops against their own population. Oh yeah, he,
0: he does. Yeah, he does say that. But the psyops were good, yeah. though. They were like an, they were well, like anti-communist. I they were anti-communist psyops. Yeah.
2: I, I and I, they may, they were probably necessary, but I think he disagrees with the principle, and he wants to live in his ultimate goal is the Type Three, which a society in which the psyops are necessary, um, and. The, but he also does advocate for certain democratic uh, strategies. And I, I think the answer is that uh, the, the, he, he puts forward a number of different solutions in various writings. But the one drum he always beats is one single election to elect a sovereign. And I think he sees that as compatible with a type three society. But, um, the you know, that being different than having this sort of democracy which continues to rely on the will of the people and must necessarily be type 1 or 2. So I, I think that it's... Um, Moabug's pretty smart. and may not see how subtle this is. Um, but I think the type 1, 2, and 3 societies really lay out
0: his feelings about democracy to place. Now, are the type 1, and 2, and 3 societies... He made those up, right? I mean, like, those are his. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to yeah. lay those out for the listener, but... I don't remember it off the top of my head, but yeah.
2: I I, I can if you if you want. I, yeah, I remember we, we'll let Lunk
0: reply and then uh, please do so.
2: Sure.
3: Um, actually, I would say let's just have Appalachia do it. My my reply was more or less just to say that um, it's important to understand why Moldbug believes the Nazis lost. He doesn't believe they lost because. Of their crimes, even he doesn't believe that they lost because they were um, because of their because they were evil, though he does believe they were evil. He thinks they lost because they very badly misread the situation they were in.
0: Well, but but which situation on the eastern front or in Germany in German politics in
3: in politics in general? that they made the same mistake that basically conservative. There's this one line in the open letter. I think it's the open letter. Actually, no, it's the general intro where he says it's actually completely fair to compare Marjorie Taylor green to Hitler. And the reason he says this is because he sees them as being, uh, two nodes in a single spectrum of Tory democracy, of being right-wing Tory democracy. And he sees the sort of failure of conservative movements, which he calls weak and fraudulent, the failure of these things is that they try to, um, in his words, uh, tile over linoleum. They're trying to take this inherently dysfunctional system of democracy and infect it with reality to try to make it effective. When the problem- he compares them to the Confederates, that that that's the
2: the failure mode he's talking
3: about. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same. Pro- he compares the Nazis to the Confederates, and it, so- I don't.
0: Yeah, I don't agree uh, on its face, but I'm willing to hear the argument. I've read it, but. Yeah. I mean, it's just like his,
3: like, again, his problem with, with the Nazis, you know, this is his problem. It's that they misread the, they misread the world they were living in and they wrongly believed that the so-called international community would allow any kind of uh, um, fascist movement to actually gain any traction, which they obviously didn't. And that, I
0: remember him saying that,
3: I think that, 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 problems still exist today where, you know, there's never a right, there's never a successful right-wing revolution. And there's a reason for this. It's
0: because there's no tolerance. Yeah, you want to, you want to hear a fucking black pill is my conclusion is that our predicament is far worse than it was for them in, in Weimar, Germany. I used to think it was better because the the, the the degeneracy in America hasn't quite reached the levels that it did in Weimar after the uh, inflationary crisis Like, we don't have people starving in the streets, uh, but I think our path to, like, installing power is far bleaker than theirs was, although Elon Musk has given me hope by allowing a platform in which I can say the things that I've been saying tonight uh, without any sort of repercussions. Although we'll see if that happens, because I was really antagonizing leftist blacks today on Twitter, and I'm assuming they mass-reported me. Anyway, that's a digression. Go on.
3: Yeah, so I mean, just like you said, if it was unfeasible for for the Germans and the Italians, it's an order of magnitude less feasible for us. And this is why he, he devotes so much time in both the open letter and the general intro to making this very clear to his readers that, you know, this is not a viable path. And uh, while you can sort of in some ways compare our goals with those of, you know, the the 20th century fascists um it's very important to not get it wrong in the way that they did so that's all i'm going to say Uh, appalachian um yeah go
0: ahead i'll stop interrupting everybody
3: (laughs) yeah so uh
2: basically he he divides societies into uh, three types one two and three uh one would be like nazi germany or uh, medieval Europe with the cathedral where you have one, one center, one source of information that uh, coordinates, uh, you know, the, the organs of information and decides what is true and what is not true. Um, type three would be what people think we are, you know, market of ideas. Uh, there's debate and then we eventually arrive. Think like uh, how science is supposed to work, you know, at the correct conclusion. And and then type two is it sort of looks like three, but it's more like one. It's um, decentralized coordination. Uh, Yarvin's you, problem with, with uh, Nazi Germany can be restated into saying he's not okay with a type one society where uh, you, you basically, because of uh, you need to maintain the will of the people, ostensibly you have to um, commit psyops and basically coordinate information. Um, and so that that's what I what I was saying is how you can read is being okay with democracy sometimes, but
0: not in these Well, cases. this gets, this gets to, um, the idea of totalitarianism. So Stalin and Hitler had like totalitarian states in which people like communication amongst the people was tightly restricted. Propaganda was ubiquitous. And, uh, the message, there was only one message allowed to be propagated in the absence of the marketplace of ideas. This is not what I think Mulbug wants. I don't think he wants a totalitarian state. I think he wants something more like the Roman Empire in which uh, like when Caesar took power and had power, the people basically could do whatever the fuck they wanted. Like he did not have complete control over the discourse and he didn't have complete control over like the, the day-to-day activities of the people. He didn't like disallow them from doing certain things. Um,
2: Yeah, he quoted some ruler to add to that who said, uh, and I think it sums it up perfectly, uh, they say what they want, I do what I want.
0: And yeah, so in Tacitus, he talks about this really interesting passage. I should find this passage because I don't remember the ruler he was talking about. But there was a really weak emperor sometime in the first hundred years of the Roman Empire. I think it was Domitian. Who was really illegitimate, he made really bad decisions, and the people were against him and he would have legionaries dress in regular clothes and like go into like pubs and the market uh into the forum and stuff and he would they would like eavesdrop and take notes on people who were like against the emperor and i I felt like these were like a prototypical secret police where they would spy on people for the emperor because he didn't he knew that he was illegitimate and he didn't want the people like spreading rumors about him and stuff. And people were, like, executed for, like, talking bad about the emperor. But this wasn't how the Roman Empire was administered through, like, in perpetuity. It was just this one illegitimate ruler who felt his power slipping, and he took these actions. But for the most part in Rome, like, people could get away with, like, thinking and saying basically whatever they want, doing basically whatever they want. They were basically just fed bread and circuses while the empire and the emperor basically focused on like growing their power and working on military affairs and and, and administering the state and things like that as opposed to a fascist empire or a fascist state which is totalitarian in that it like forces uniformity of thought and you know a lot of the people arrested uh by the stasi right those were the east german police i believe uh were like arrested for like what that you were accused of thinking, right? And that's not what Moldbug wants. That's not exactly how it worked in uh, the empire uh, of Rome. So they're not totally analogous, the two things. Go ahead, Lunk. Although if I've gotten that wrong, please uh, refute me. But this is how I understand it.
3: No, that's, that's, that's right as I understand it as well. And this exact dynamic is where he traces the, um, the crimes of the 20th century regimes. And it's just kind of this deeper problem of, of liberalism itself, where, when you have this political order that derives its legitimacy from public opinion, there is an entire state apparatus. There's an entire, there, there is this whole all consuming incentive to shape public opinion, whoever rules public opinion is sovereign. And in Moldbug's reading, of course, this is the press and the universities. In Nazi Germany and in the Soviet Union, these were, you know, the, the Ministry of Propaganda, the Stasi. And the reason these things were incent- these, these institutions were incentivized to commit these atrocities, is, is ex- because of exactly this feature of democracy, where they have to shape public opinion, they have to tightly control it. And in a, a non democratic state where what the people think simply doesn't matter, There's no incentive to do this. You're actually far more free in an important sense to believe whatever you want. The only thing you're not free to do is question the government. But it actually turns out that when the government doesn't care what you think, this isn't really that important to to most things in life. The only thing you're the only thing you're not free to do is take part in politics. You know, you're not free to vote. Uh, Sovereignty is not your concern. Political rule is not your concern. You know, for Moldbug, that's the concern of the Stuarts, and and it's that simple. Just like you owning an iPhone does not mean you get to have a say on iPhone on Apple's board of directors, okay? But you get all the benefits of 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 Apple. You get all the benefits of using your iPhone. And there's no apparatus within Apple that cares about what you think. It's a binary question of do you do you you buy the phone or do you not? For Moldbug, it's you know you can live in this sort of patchwork feudalist state, or you can you can not, and that's really all there is to it. There's no incentive to force an opinion on you. There's no incentive to police your thought. Um, so the democratic aspect of it is, is, you know, duly important. That's why he says these regimes committed the kinds of crimes they did, um, which is why he thinks it's so important that any, any sustainable regime must reject every aspect of democracy. It must use democracy to basically delete democracy and if it doesn't do that it will just be it will be hitler and for Moldbug, that's like the worst possible outcome
0: um so this is this is very important yeah well this is absolutely true you you know your mold bug very fucking well <laughs> uh necro go ahead i know necro its time is limited i'm glad you've stuck with us this long brother good
1: <laughs> thank you yeah i i'm here i've been here a lot longer than i intended because it's just so interesting to listen to everyone um, I will have to go to bed um, just after this, um, so I'll I'll leave with just a very brief c- concluding remarks. Um, yeah, I completely completely echo what Appalachian and Lunk have, have been saying. They, they they've hit. They've described it much better than I could. Yeah, um, uh, you know the the, the the issue with these regimes uh, is not that they claimed power via democracy, but that they legitimised it and maintained it through democracy. And and, and and public opinion. And with respect to going back to a practical outlook on our future, when you look at the tools that actually exist at our disposal, uh, it is true that actually, to, to a certain extent, democracy is one because the elites control all of the major institutions, all of the the avenues of power, the only source of power aside from that are basically the 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 the, the red belt. Um, although it would would not be red in, in England, but you know what I mean, um, is that there is this this uh, populist energy, as it would be called. You know the, the populist energy that voted for Trump, that that and the way forward that, that Moberg argues uh, in this essay is, and actually I think also in gray mirror at one point is the union between the energy of democracy and the organization of monarchy. It is, it is a, the, the the counter to an oligarchy is the union of democracy and monarchy. And that would be a very interesting uh, discussion to have on its own. But, To draw into this discussion the point is that for us we have the ability and we are um that we have the potential i should say to harness this populist energy and the key is that if you can harness it and use that energy to reform to um to completely reconstitute the mechanisms of government, mm. then that is what victory would look like um, anyway I've, I've 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 talked a lot I want to thank everyone again I want to thank you Astral, for hosting these amazing spaces uh these have just been amazing It's been great to hear from everyone um everyone's very interesting, and I look forward to hopefully being able to make more in the future. Until next time. Thanks for coming, brother.
0: Yeah, quickly, I need to, I forgot something with the Schmidt thing. I did the whole entire Schmidt thing off the top of my head and I forgot one thing that is sort of uh, non sequitur from what we've been talking about. I put this tweet in the top of the space so that you will all please go and follow the Passage Press Twitter page. Passage Press Twitter page is uh, going to be monetized someday. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's going to be a source of uh, Moldbugian uh, uh, information. So it's going to have like passages from Moldbug and discussions and elaborations and elucidations of Moldbug's ideas, as well as that of every other subsequent publication. So Steve Saylor's in the works, uh, Zero HP Lovecraft is in the works. I don't know who else. Zero HP Lovecraft is going to be publishing a, a novel, a new a uh, previously unreleased novel, which is going to be an expansion on the novella that is being published in the Passage Prize. Uh, Menches Mold Bugman, who I'm sure you all remember, the old Twitter account was the Passage Prize judge. They didn't know who the uh, you know it was all anonymous submissions, and uh, Zero HP Lovecraft did not win for second or third place in uh, believe it or not. So that's that's great to know that Love Zero submitted a, a, a new piece of fiction and uh, three other people beat him. So I'm really interested to read those. Um, I have read zeroes s uh, story and he's expanding it. So you can read that in the forthcoming passage prize volume two. He's expanding that into a new novel um, that passage will be publishing. So look forward to that. Lomas says it will be 2023. So hopefully that's true. Steve Saylor's coming. Anyway, this is my little commercial for Passage Press, so please follow their Twitter page up above. Much more content coming from there. Uh, buy the Unqualified Reservations book. It's a hardcover. It's really, really nice. It's got a lot of great features. It's only $40, which I think is a great deal. But what I wanted to say real quick that I left out of my discussion of Schmidt that I forgot is that uh, Moldbug talks about entropy, and Moldbug's discussion of entropy is basic basically like Bureaucracy. He says that, like, entropy captures the state and uh, paralyzes it and stymies it. Nick Land, all of his subsequent writings after Moldbug are very much couched in in elaborations on Moldbug's thought. He also talks about entropy. And you can think about entropy as the capture of energy, the capture of useful energy. So you need heat to be put into the system to get work done, and then... The amount of heat put into the system is greater than the amount of the thing produced by the system. So whatever the product of the system is, is uh, lesser heat energy than uh, the amount put in, right? This is like the law of thermodynamics. And the uh, output... Of energy is not usable anymore it's spent energy and as more energy goes into the system and this spent energy accumulates this is what entropy is because that spent energy is unusable to do more work according to Moldbug, the entropy in the state is bureaucracy because the energy of the people, the energy of the civilization and the culture and the institutions gets captured by bureaucracy and gets dissolved into the running of the institution and not into producing the products that the institution is supposed to produce, which is like warfare, trade, administering the laws, things like that. So when Moldbug talks about entropy, he's talking about bureaucracy. He says this directly. This is what Schmidt was talking about What I said earlier where I said the decision is deferred and dissolved. The decision is dissolved into the deliberations of parliament or into the deliberations of the body politic who are trying to reach a decision. And it's further and further dissolved. So I think Moldbug's uh, conceptualization of entropy is uh, a recapitulation, not a recapitulation. It's not a recapitulation. It's a reappropriation of Schmidt's concept, uh, which actually he gets from this catholic react, spanish reactionary i mentioned denoso um of of entropy so it's an entropic the the su- universal suffrage which like dissolves politics into the deliberations of of the demos is a form of entropy um i know that's a bit of a non-sequitur but i i had forgotten that detail um broad has uh joined us and put his hand up he's a good friend of mine and uh, he's always welcome here and Med Gold joined us as well, and I look forward because I know Med is, you know, famous for other, uh, <laughs> other things, but uh, I also know he's a, a reader of Moldbug, so I've been really looking forward to having him in one of these spaces and hearing him talk about Moldbug. Uh But let's let Broad go first; he's had his hand up.
7: Yeah, we've covered so much territory earlier. Uh, before I left my house, you were, you guys were um, kind of spinning around with truth because I think there were different. Pres- I hate to use the word perspectives or any word now because it it only aligns firmly with one camp when it comes specifically to truth. But that's kind of the point. Uh during the Jungian era, you would have had the uh, the church versus the reformed churches versus I guess just the, the lay person who didn't attend at all. Uh, but Young would have put that as the two the two trees, the tree going up and the, the roots. Sometimes it's put as, but also you you might have a mirror there and a and a dark tree extending down below. And then that gets inverted based on, you know, what your reference for truth is. Uh, And not to draw too much from movies, but in the movie The Matrix, uh, he says, good evening, Mr. Anderson. The reason he says that Anders, son, means the son of man. So you've got a point counterpoint there between the son of God or sons of God and the sons of men, you know, between the people who base their reference in uh, reading the Bible themselves, essentially, and uh, as the ultimate authority of the church and I guess the Catholic church. Uh, In that era, and now we're we're in an arena where we've got far too many different roots going on in terms of truth. So I heard that going on, and I just wanted to call attention to it because it's it's difficult to say uh, at this point what the truth is. In the AI discussions, I've pointed out quite a bit recently that they intentionally decided to move away from relativism to referentialism. In other words, what references you include. Uh, in a body of work or in an ai model or in a any any sort of model like a climate model is going to determine what the truth is that emerges out of that and we've seen that so that's called biasing the model right uh and that that foregoes any any form of absolute truth though right there so there there might be a bit of a polarity there but when you hear people talking about truth and, and not able to agree on what constitutes truth i think uh, that's one way of, of discerning that. I think it could probably be simplified once people have uh, the time to grapple with those kind of things. And it emerges pretty quickly what somebody's using as a frame of reference if you listen to the other things that they're saying in support of it. Uh, your point, Astral, is that you don't think truth is enough might be just that people have too many frames of reference for truth now, but it might also be correct that the truth alone is not enough. Uh, even in, in Christianity, Uh, jesus would say the way the truth and the light right Uh, so there's probably more than one component needed and you're correct when people simply rely on the truth uh, it's quickly obfuscated or you've got for instance in your example of um it wasn't an emperor but you said he he put his men among the people in the common clothes to kind of spy on them and create misinformation and disinformation i think that's really schwab's territory even more than here he likes to talk a lot about subjects like that so there's many different ways to to fight back against the truth including going back to the relativism versus referentialism versus the multipolar kind of world that we live in now. Uh, that was quite some time ago in the space. And you've said so many other things I'd like to expand on, but I would like to cede time to other people because I want to go get a hamburger and enjoy myself. So, yeah, no, that you. was
0: great. And you are right about my characterization, which I'm basically getting from Nietzsche, who says that like the will to truth is like, it's like a mistake to to will to truth because and he's talking about like the the history of philosophy and he's talking about like the, the tradition of philosophy which is um trying to like you're doing philosophy with the intention of arriving at the truth and um then and once you get there you elaborate on what the truth is that's what the greeks were always looking for like what is the good life right I think Nietzsche, I don't know if I'm getting this from Nietzsche, but I'm getting this from somewhere, but like the truth is not necessarily this like transcendent reality that we can like um align ourselves with. rather, it's it's uh basically the will to power, and that whoever like embodies the will to power and uh, acts on the will to power and gains power and has power, therefore has the truth. And like what they say, Becomes the truth, and that that becomes like um, they they can they can administer the truth through their power. And this is Moldbug's whole thing: is that like progressives are not like they think they have the truth; they claim to have the truth, which is which is also what uh, religion says and does. However, when you act, when you look at the way they act what they're really doing is consolidating their own power. And that's why they're winning. They're not winning because they actually have the truth and that because the truth is on their side, it's because everything they do is done with the intention of consolidating and perpetuating and retaining their own power. So, you know, this isn't really how Nietzsche says it, but this is how I understand Nietzsche, which is that, like, the will to power uh, is more important than the, the the having of the truth. And if you embody the will to power and gain power, uh, you then are the administer of truth, just like the monarch, right? This is everything I was talking about with Schmidt. Like the monarch is the arbiter of the law, right? And the law is like the truth. And so that's that. Let's let Med come in, even if he's got, I don't know if he's got specific comments or re- re- responses to what we've been saying. And uh, Lunk, keep your hand up. We'll get to you in a moment.
8: Uh, I'm just listening my friend I am I'm enjoying the space uh, if there's anything uh, you want me to comment on I'm happy to but uh, I'm just uh, I, I, I dialed in kind of late so I'm just catching up
0: Well, put your hand up if you got something to say and Lunk go ahead
8: yeah I was gonna say it's
3: um, it's certainly true that the regime the current regime did not achieve its level of power uh, by truth this is definitely the case uh, but the kind of whole premise of moldbug's whole program is that their total divorce from the truth is the thing that will be their downfall. And his whole kind of his whole the whole reason he has for writing this is to bring the truth to people's eyes because a regime that is so totally divorced from truth eventually becomes unsustainable. And I don't I think that if there's going to be a way, to To bring about a fundamental, you know, restoration, to use his word, it's going to be through exactly this avenue of truth—the very thing that they have uh, neglected so badly. Um, which is why, he, you know, probably why he's so partial to this this name, the faction of truth. Um, when it and last thing, when it comes to to ruling, I'm not sure there's a huge distinction to be made between. Uh, truth and effectiveness. I think that a regime's, any regime's um, long term sustainability is going to be a function of how closely in line it is with the truth. Because whether it governs effectively, whether it performs its primary sovereign functions, uh, you know, these things are going to be dependent on whether it's actually living in reality. And if it's not doing this, it's going to devolve for the same reason that. Uh, you know, a corporation that is not um, living in in, in financial reality is going to go bankrupt. A political order that is not living in political reality is going to devolve and and be replaced.
0: Yeah, it's a different form of truth though, right? Because like if you, so this is how I understand the negative feedback loop of like uh, institutional decay and loss of legitimacy of the state. Athenian, I'm very happy to see you take the mic, keep your hand up just for a second and hold that thought. I just want to respond to Lunk. So when you talk about truth, right, you, so so Moldbug, Moldbug says in this essay that, like, the sovereign debt crisis, because they're so bad at administering the economy, is going to crash the economy, and they're not going to be able to, like, deal with their sovereign debt crisis, and they're going to have to hand it over to a board of trustees and a receiver who's going to turn it into a business to, like, keep the state running, right? The truth in this sense is not, I don't think, anyway, I don't think it's the truth that we're talking about. The truth, rather, in this sense, is like the economic, like hard reality, which you could like make an argument lies basically in like you know the gold back standard, right? That's the ultimate truth of money because that's what it all comes down to, because that's where actual value is stored in in a, in, a, in a in a real place, right? So that's like the highest form of good, or or if you want to use philosophical concepts, you know, that's where sovereignty in the economy resides, and you can only uh, continue this illusion and this untruth of money printing for so long right i'm kind of like i'm kind of like uh i'm kind of like um um i'm kind of like uh morphing words here to like fit the argument but the other form of truth about like biological truth and truth about like um A man being a woman and things like that or uh, the truth about uh, immigration or the truth about uh, morals and things like that, right? Or the actual truth about what the government is actually doing about the way how it's like abusing its people and the way that it's like disenfranchising its people and the way that it's expropriating their wealth. They hide that truth to make a veneer of like doing good and benevolency but with things like epstein the truth is revealed that like what's really going on is a system of blackmail and a system of uh money laundering and things like that right so then the truth is exposed in that sense and then if they try to push a lie like uh transgenderism and you put transgender people in positions of power and they do things like steal women's dresses at the mall or i mean at the airport right these things now this is the negative feedback loop that actually uh, uh, drains the legitimacy of the state and it robs their legitimacy uh, from the people. So they're no longer seen as legitimate by the people and the people turn on them. Their reaction to that when they start to lose legitimacy because the truth is revealed and their lies are exposed, right, their cover-ups and their lies are exposed, uh, the people turn on them and they lose legitimacy with the people. So their reaction to to that is to have more heavy-handed direct exercises of naked power and direct exercises of naked persecution. So they start to like, their rhetoric has to get ramped up to like, this is why BAP calls it like the inter left. Like what that is, the inter left. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that word right. Is there was people in Rwanda who were like loudly declaring for like the massacre of their political enemies. Uh, Now, they're loudly declaring for like the, the the imprisonment the disenfranchisement and the massacre of white people right this is a tactic that a desperate state who's lost its legitimacy has to like like uh, uh, resort to in the exposure of the fact that they know the truth no longer resides in them right so that's why I understand like the discussion of the truth being like worthwhile right so, When we have the truth, like, it's not necessarily a tactic that's going to, like, erode the state directly, but it's going to help bring people to our side in the delegitimization of the state, which could eventually lead to its downfall and replacement, but could also lead to further and further draconian measures. So one of the things that I like to say is that, like, you know the FBI has been going after like different targets. So they were actually going after like black radicals at one time. I know this is extremely difficult to understand and believe, but it's true. And then they were going after environmental radicals. Then they were going after uh, like Muslim terrorists, and the, and now they're going after like white nationalists, which is basically just like white property owning kulaks, right? Uh, their tactic now is to like turn on the people. And I look forward to seeing, like, regular white people thrown in Guantanamo Bay, right? That's the type of thing. This is—I I, I mentioned a Agamben, who talks about uh, Schmidt a lot. He talks about the homo soccer. The homo soccer is the individual who is, like, not accounted for uh, in the laws of the state, which is to say he's not protected by the laws of the state, which is to say that he can be killed with impunity or imprisoned with impunity uh, uh, by the state without re- recourse to the law. Um, so you, what you saw in Guantanamo Bay was refugee or not, excuse me, not refugees, but like, uh, well, so actually, actually, no, it was, there were refugee people might not know this, but the other people in Guantanamo Bay, besides like Muslim terrorists from Iraq, uh, who, some of whom who were like, didn't do anything, um, were refugees from like Haiti and stuff who were trying to get into America. They got caught and arrested. They couldn't be repatriated for one reason or another, but they couldn't be brought to America and they end up languishing in Guantanamo Bay for like, God knows how long you can equate this directly to like the January 6th protesters who's, I know some of them are getting out. I think there's still people in prison now, but uh, you know, how many years were these people stuck here Were stuck there um, for, for, for basically trespassing, you know, um, point being, that like the homo soccer is the person who is outside like the umbrella of the law and that he can be tried not not tried, he can be imprisoned without trial now the homo soccer is becoming like the white landowning kulak this these are the people that originally gave legitimacy to the state these are the original source of power for the state because they're the tax revenue they're the voters and they're the people who like believed in the state and they no longer do the state is not legitimate to them anymore. So let's let Athenian pick it up.
9: Yeah, I, uh, I, w- I wish I had more to add directly onto to a lot of this, this topic. Um, but I, look, I just wanted to add uh, just sort of in passing um, for, for people who, who really want to understand Schmidt. Um, and so obviously, I mean, this doesn't have anything to do with, with mold I'm not too familiar with his writings, but, um, what what Schmidt in many ways is doing is is he's he's bringing Hobbes back, and so so taking that into consideration with this notion of an enlightened despot, um, that and, and how it is that you know the enlightened despot gains legitimacy. Uh, these are the kind of things that, that are going to to really help people in in understanding Schmidt because. Uh, a, a lot of what Astral said at the very beginning was very correct uh, Schmidt has this wonderful way of writing that is in many ways easily understandable but then also very complicated <laughs> um, and he does expect uh, that his readers have have read and understood Hobbes rather thoroughly so uh, just a just a, a, a a, a, p- a plea there for uh, for people to take a look at uh, at his Leviathan. Oh, and, and also definitely a plug for uh, what Astral had also properly mentioned there, uh, Herodotian Dreams. Uh, I mean, Herodotian Dreams is easily one of the most promising uh, young young guys I've I've ever had the good fortune of coming across. Uh, and his Substack is very 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 much worth uh, your time taking a look at. Uh, he's a he's very very knowledgeable about these things. Um, and would you would to- you-
0: would you agree with me if I said that Herodotian Dreams has a very unique read on basically everything he he talks about? He, he's got like a a very nuanced and unique interpretation. Um, me and him a- end up getting in arguments a lot. And I'm I'm usually arguing like the standard interpretation and he's using his own idios- idiosyncratic interpretation, which always is, is correct and couched in the text itself. And I'm always blown away by uh, the new perspective he gives me on the, the text we're talking about. So if you want an introduction to Smith, and I said uh, Schmidt, I keep calling him Smith. Uh, if you want an introduction to Schmidt, there is no better place. Uh, uh, like I said earlier, the bureaucrat's essay is mo- more for an advanced reader. Uh, Her- Herod- Her- Her- I can't say this guy's name. Herodotian dreams' is, uh, essays is the perfect introduction. Go on, Athena. I didn't mean to cut you off. But I can't help uh, sing the praises of my brother here.
9: Yeah no look I'm, I'm with you on that and the thing about uh, Herodotus and dreams is it's 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 not so much that it's it's he offers unique or nuanced readings on things uh, many people would think that uh, but but Herodotus and dreams is one of these uh, up and coming guys that is just really relying 100 percent on reading the texts uh, he has almost nothing to do with secondary literature. Um, and and he just absolutely buries himself in these these writers. He sends me he sends me requests uh, for uh, essays and various things that a lot of these guys have published that I've that I haven't even heard of, which is very very rare. Uh, I mean, he asked for various essays of, of uh, Schmidt uh, very often that haven't even been translated into English yet. Uh, he asked for various things on Hobbes that most people wouldn't even know where to go to find them. If they're even aware that Hobbes wrote them. Uh, And he did a very, very extensive study in Hobbes uh, just prior to doing his uh, deep dive into Schmidt uh, over the past year. So he's, he's really a kind of a go-to guy on these things. Uh, And again, um, it's not that he's, he's so nuanced or anything, but he's, he's, in the true sort of Heideggerian sense of what happened in the twentieth century, of going back and just really, really focusing on the primary text. I mean, we're talking uh, just individual passages for very, very long times to just really understand what's going on there. That's that's what Herodotian dreams is doing, and so yeah. just, just just having a conversation with them sometimes. Uh, it's it's like well hold on slow down there uh, you, you're you're in the deep water uh, and I'm I'm not even sure what you're talking about at this point so
0: if you ever find yourself in a literary debate with him which I have multiple times you need oh, yeah. to be very fucking careful because uh, he always brings it back to the text which was my downfall at certain times because uh, I tell him listen man what you're saying is groundless this is you can't argue this. And then he'll show me a passage and I'll say, fuck, he's, he's getting this directly from the text. Now I have to rethink the whole thing. I have so much shit to reread now. Um, Well, the,
9: the, the great thing too, is that he's definitely, he's definitely our guy in the sense that he gives zero fucks about people in academia. And, and more often than not, uh, he is able to just destroy them uh, at their own game, which is so beautiful. You guys, Him... you, you guys haven't seen it the way I have because of a particular. Uh, well, I'll just avoid how I know, but uh, the, 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 the the takedowns that Herodoty and Dreams has done uh, of very very uh, respectable uh, professional uh, academic pro- I mean, professors of philosophy is just absolutely beautiful. Uh, I mean, just absolutely beautiful. So.
0: But hopefully, Herodotinian will come up here and and speak. Um, Let's let Lunk go, but we are way off now. We can talk about anything. I mean, I'm so drunk, I don't even know if I can fucking talk. I don't know if I could talk about Schmidt at this point because my brain is disintegrating into a million fractals. But um, yeah, I'm probably good for another hour. If people want to keep talking, just bring up whatever you want. People could start requesting the mic. Um, I see a lot of people in the audience I would love to hear from. I just want to. Shameless self-promotion here. Athenian, myself, Herodotian, Ancient, who's in the audience right now, uh, Catherine, who was in the audience, but she left, and Bolingbroke, who's not here right now, are going to host a roundtable discussion similar to this one in uh, structure on Hamlet. And uh, it's going to be, I anticipated being the most epic, well-attended, legendary Twitter space of all time. Now the current epic legendary Twitter space of all time uh, goes to me and Athenian on uh, uh, Nietzsche versus Dostoevsky, but I, I I suspect perhaps because of the Titans that we've assembled for the Hamlet discussion that the Hamlet one may actually uh, overshadow. It's a tall order. I think we had something like what did we have Athenian twelve point five thousand fucking listeners. Uh, so I, am looking forward to this, uh, dwarfing that, but we shall see. Um, and, uh, interestingly enough, the argument between me and Herodotian that, uh, that led to this space was about Hamlet and he was, uh, referring a lot to a book Schmidt wrote on Hamlet, which I never even heard of until he told me about it. But Schmidt has a book on Hamlet that I look forward to reading before this space. Go ahead, Lunk. Let's get back on topic here. Uh, that was uh, we just showed our guy. We just showed the future space. Follow Passage Press uh, Twitter space, Twitter account. I mean, and uh, Lunkhead, please get us back on track. I need you desperately. <laughs>
3: um, no, that was
0: that was a, a lovely uh, uh,
3: segment on Her- Herodotian dreams. Uh, I'm also very interested in this Hamlet uh, space. Well, sounds, you, you've uh... proven
0: yourself to be indispensable, so you are more than welcome. I appreciate that.
3: Um, the only thing I was going to say, uh, we don't have to go down this route, but uh, in your previous, um, before we brought up Herodotian dreams, uh, the discussion on, on truth, there's this critique of Moldbug that he's a Marxist. And I did not... <coughs> oh, I, um, I had so badly want to talk this.
0: about this because, yes, yeah. go ahead. I had,
3: never, I had never encountered this claim of Moldbug until a few weeks ago. Uh, after the last maybe before the last space um, but Steven Steven Pimentel I don't know if he's in this space he's uh, he's uh, very knowledgeable on this um, he pointed out that it's most likely because of exactly this materialist uh, uh, sort of bent that Moldbug has and I kind of brought this up earlier for Moldbug the material is, is the truth he, he is you know an atheist he places great um, uh, primacy on the material and all of his arguments, you know, he's very outspoken about, um, you know, his his avenue for restoration is the economic, you know, it's not, uh, it's not, uh, divine right. you know, although he does, um, take many cues from divine right people. Um, he's much more interested in the economic and he sees the economic as being the avenue for the new regime. Um, and this is because he is a materialist and he sees this as being the sort of highest, he doesn't really ascribe to the the sort of metaphysical um, dimension of any of these things. Um, so when we talk about Moldbug's truth and how he sort of, um, there are these like different kinds of truth and Moldbug, you know, he cares about the financial truth, but not these other kinds of truths regarding things like, like gay marriage or whatever. Uh, he just doesn't believe in those things. So again, this is not really a, a function of Uh, You know, uh, he doesn't care about truth. He's just, he has a different set of ideas that he considers true. And among the things he considers true, uh, God is not one of them. Uh, So neither are any of the things that sort of are downstream of belief in God. He just doesn't really care um, about whether two men uh, get married or whether somebody wants to, you know, uh, uh, do general mutilation on himself. These things just aren't really a concern for him. I mean, he definitely he definitely understands that they are progressive symptoms, but he only sees them as being kind of incidental. They're, and I brought this up before, where there's a kind of important distinction to be made with Moldbug, between Moldbug and other types of like right wingers, where a lot of people on the right were radicalized. By exactly these kinds of things, like they, they got very, you know, they see these sort of perversions around us, and that makes them understand that something's very wrong. The thing that turned Moldbug into the you know NRX guy that he is, it had nothing to do with any of this. You know, he was he was writing before, certainly before Obergefell. He was writing before you know the so-called Great Awakening. He was writing before, um, really, any of this cultural stuff. Really started uh, uh, red-pilling people. The thing that got him was A, crime, and B, truth. You know, he, just, he studied history extensively and saw all the lies. And that's the thing that made him realize this entire project, this entire order, just has to go. And so th- it's important to not misread Moldbug like this. He doesn't care about, he doesn't place so much emphasis on the material because he's a Marxist he places it on it because he has a, he he approaches it from a libertarian perspective he started as a libertarian before he was a reactionary he was a libertarian he still holds pretty much all of those same views in the cultural context clearly not in the economic clearly not in the political but in the cultural context he still believes all these things he's approaching this from a fundamentally sort of libertarian perspective he approaches government from the perspective of an engineer. He wants the state to be very strong so that it can be small, so that it can, it's a, it's a, it's a form, form follows function kind of approach. And with this sprawling government that infects every area of life because of its weakness, um, he compares it to this, uh, Astral kind of brought it up before, he compares it to this like red giant star where its energy is constantly dissipating and it has to constantly grow and it has to like infect all these new areas of life in order to maintain its, its hold on sovereignty. Whereas if it was simply strong, if it was effective, if it was functional, it wouldn't have to do this. It would be able to actually, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be in all these areas of life. It would exist solely in the political where it would wield power with great force when it needs to and allow people to live pretty much however they want to live in all other areas of life. Um, so yeah, this Marxist critique I think is very dumb. It's like a fundamental misreading of of what he cares about. Um, so I
0: just wanted to to bring that up because your previous uh, speech reminded me of it. I agree with you. I, I, I get your characterization, but that's a very like subtle read, and I don't know if Mulbug's critics have that same read. I'd like to hear what, what they say. I, I think it's just because he's Jewish uh if you read him he's just not communist but uh adrian what's up brother good to see you i didn't think you were gonna make it
10: yo i did not make it on time uh i was hanging out with nopticon emoji tonight uh but i'm glad to jump in uh i don't know where you are on the talk but this is
0: good well if you can hang out man just stick around um absolutely so, why did Bap say that the New York scene that's frog adjacent uh, is heavily compromised and that there are regular doxers there? Is it because Pariah hangs out there?
10: Well, hold on. Like, I would love to cut in for that. I do think that the New York scene is a little bit weird. Um, but I do think that Yarvin has a very good reason why he's Yeah, I agree. And it's not—it's not like to, uh, you know, to create counter-signaling or to um, to bring in people that we don't want in the space. I think he's doing it for a very calculated reason. Uh, he's creating a new like Warhol factory, and I think this is something that you have to get the art scene on your side in order to create culture. And like I feel like Yarvin has talked about this a lot. You have to create culture, and that this sometimes has to go through people you don't really want to have in your scene in the right space. You know. Uh, especially when it when it has to do with like dissident art scenes, I think I understand why he does it, and I don't I don't necessarily approve totally, but I understand why he does it.
0: Well, a lot of people give the scene a lot of shit, and it is kind of gay, but I also get why. It's, well, I
10: mean, it's it's it's, it's I get why gay. it's. A-
0: it's, it's important, yeah. though, but I personally, like, think the more important angle is Passage, Passage Prize and, and Man's World magazine. I think that's where a culture is going to be generated. Uh, the New York City scene is good because it, like, actually, you know what? Tonight in uh, L.A., there is a reading going on between, like, um, I, I think Lomez is there, but I know that Delicious Tacos is reading, Moldbug is reading, And uh, disgraced propagandist Isaac is reading, as well as Matt Pagas, who's one half of the New Right podcast. Um, They're in LA doing a a reading right now. So these things are like really, really important to like a thriving subculture. And, you know, one of the things I was, when I was talking about like the, the National Socialists and things like that earlier, one of the things Moldbug says is that like, the liberal state that was built and, and installed and, like, uh, developed after World War One, one of its main fucking reasons for being was to keep a fascist movement from, like, ever coalescing and arising again. So um, they learned the tactics of the National Socialists during the interwar period, and they are, like, specifically... Uh, programmed to uh shut that down as soon as it gets started so that using those tactics is a is a path to failure it's 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 like the one thing that they are like trained and ready and looking for us to do so we can't do the things that they do i agree with him a thousand percent i'm a thousand percent on board that the path to victory is to like capture the hearts and minds and the interest and the energy of young people and people like us who have like we're all these autistic spurgs who have all this like energy and interest and all these obscure things to like bring us together and put us on like the same plane of discourse to like install these like subversive ideas in people's minds so that there is this like uh, you know, Moldbug the reason Moldbug says that you have to use democracy to on your path to victory is a Machiavellian reason. He's using Machiavellian uh, perspective here, political on on how to overcome an illegitimate regime that is intent on keeping power, and the only way to do that is to get like the fervor of the people behind some some alternative source of power, typically probably a strongman, typically probably a Caesar or a prince figure or a demagogue. Um, one of the ways to do this is to get the culture sort of kind of like prime them for anti-democratic and uh, racial and racist ideas. So that if someone comes along who is like willing to counter the regime, someone who's like potentially in a position where they could take power, that people like us would back them and that the delegitimization of the state would not just result in chaos and like, the heat death of the state, but rather result in like a newfound fervor and, 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 and find a new place for like, uh, uh, the, not just the will, but the energy of the people to get behind. And what we're talking about, what it looks like is very much like what, uh, Trump looked like because he did a lot of touring of the country and you get, he had all these fired up, whipped up crowds. Um, Uh, that's why I've said before that, like, probably the path forward, if we want to like talk politics, if we want to like inject politics into a cultural movement, it should probably be nationalist politics. Um, that's the way forward is nationalist politics. That's what worked for Trump.
10: So would you put it, would you put a distinction between like, say civic nationalist politics and say more racial national Yeah, apologies. I
0: think I think the racist stuff should be part of the foundation, but it shouldn't be uh the vanguard. So to have someone like Steve Saylor doing a Steve Saylor posting and then have Elon Musk talk about uh thirteen and sixty, that's really good. The IQ stuff that like Charles Murray talks about and picking that up, that's really good. That's the stuff that should be like leading. The more like like, racist, like, jokes and, like, racist, like, uh, physiognomy stuff, like, that's less likely to, like, appeal to, like, a broader population. What you want to appeal to a broader population is, like, facts and logic. Like, you want them to see that, like, the problem in your country is that this statistical population is statistically responsible for, like, this amount of, like violent crime or statistically responsible for like this amount of uh uh capture of state revenue to address their problem and then if you somehow dealt with this population then you would thereby deal with that political problem or that economic problem whereas like some of like the 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 more jokey stuff or some of the more esoteric racism stuff and the more artistic autistic racism that probably has to stay in the realm of like online autists. Uh, I don't think that's marketable to a mass society. But like, know, I mean, I've said this repeatedly Red Scare, like talking about Steve Saylor, is insanely powerful. Because what happened to me, right? What happened to me is that like I had all these like racist thoughts and feelings uh, that I kept to myself for like 10 years. And I like live my life in a way that was like subtly racist in that I avoided black people or I gave them less of the benefit of the doubt in my interpersonal relations. If I ever had the misfortune of like encountering one and having to deal with one of them. But I was not like, like, like uh, I was not like a straightforwardly racist in my like discourse. And I never really like gave any oxygen to my thoughts until I listened to BAP. And then he sort of like, Gave me like the inspiration to like share it. I'm like, oh, this guy's doing it, and he's making it funny, and it's like really powerful, and it's really like assertive, and um, I can do that too. And then like you know, I didn't really think about it except for this personal experience for me. But then once Red Scare started talking about um, like Steve Saylor and then I started like meeting e-girls online who I ended up finding out were like racist. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is happening to, like, everyone. Like, all these random people are showing up because of all these different things that are, like, coalescing, like, under Bap and Moldbug, basically. I mean, they're basically the two leaders, right? And, like, people are coming into the scene, and what happened to me is happening to these people. They were racist the whole time. They just weren't empowered to, like, express their racism and, like, share it. So the more we, like, make it, like, like make racism cool, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, the more likely it is that it's going to become, like, like part of the discourse. You know what I'm saying? And my new tactic, my new—and Matt, I'll let you come in. My new thing is, like, bully people off Twitter by telling them that this is now a racist-friendly platform and they are no longer welcome here, which, if you heard me say earlier that I've uh, gotten to an argument this— evening with uh, leftist black women it's because i said exactly that to some big account and i've been been piled on all day but i don't think i said anything that's like suspendable i just said this isn't your place anymore the racists are taking over we this is our platform now and we're all racist and you're not welcome here so you should leave and i'd like to see all of us doing that <laughs> like go on med sorry i didn't mean to talk so much Oh yeah. Uh, you, uh, I would like like to interject. Well, here. hold on. Let, let, let Med go. Like, let, let Med
8: go real uh, quick. Yeah. But but don't oh, go yeah, anywhere. Don't go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, um, part of what Elon's ma- uh, magic has is similar to BAPS in a way. Um, it it really comes down to charisma. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to do with like word selling to people and showing graphs and arguments and things like that. Elon Musk has a tremendous amount of status. Uh, You can compare it to BAP in our space, you know, in in the sense that he has, you know, the most amount of status. But Elon Musk comes off as very calm, collected and, you know, people don't like this word, but normal. And when you're, um, you know, in a place where you have that amount of status and you are coming off in an approachable, somewhat sane way, you could kind of say whatever you want. Um, he's funny. He's, you know, he, he comes off in a way that's approachable. Um, so you could kind of put whatever you want, um, you know, in terms of the things that he says. But it, it comes down to the status and the charisma. I don't think how he says it and what he says is necessarily important because, you know, the you know, I forgot who said it. But the, the people are a woman. The, uh, you know, the masses are a woman. Um, they're easily charmed and has that going for him. So he could he could pretty much say whatever he wants at this point.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's Nietzsche. My po- I agree with you a thousand percent. I just want to clarify that when I talked about like Steve Saylor posting and like graphs and statistics, my point about that is that that's the type of thing that could probably fly in mainstream discourse without being immediately shut down.
8: Yeah, uh, I mean look, Steve Saylor isn't a charismatic guy. He's a boomer, right? Um he's not a guy who's front and center. Um he's not particularly funny. Um, you know, he appeals to people who are more autistic and, you know, yeah. let's say uh, data oriented, and that's that's amazing. He does what he does well. Yeah, um, Tra- Charles he Murray too. To Parrot what he says in his own Elon Musk way, but he he does it in a way that's approachable to people and understandable, and he knows how to break things down. I think it was uh, Rich, you know, Richard Feynman who said like, you know. If you can't summarize something very complex in one sentence, you don't really understand it at all. And Elon Musk has that kind of power where he could summarize something very complex, very simply um, to a mass group of people, you know, with, you know, frankly, the average person has a low IQ and most people can understand what he says. And that's a tremendous talent that he has.
0: Yeah, I think he's the path to victory. Personally,
8: Uh, I'm, I'm starting the cult of
0: Elon Musk. If anybody wants to join, my DMs are open. All you have to do is give me money. Uh, Go ahead, Adrian.
10: Yeah, this is what I was talking about. So I think that the way this goes forward is that you have to be able to acknowledge reality. And this is something that I, I find very in common with Meta. Is this idea that it's not so much about aligning yourself with a particular idea. It's just like you have to admit what the real world is. We all see this. We all know it. We all see it happen in front of us. Like reality is what it is and we all see it for what it is. It's a it's a mystic concept, it's a it's a physical concept and we all are exposed to it. I think the way to like a, like grab the normie mind is to just appeal to what everyone sees and what everyone already knows in front of their faces right now.
0: Well, you know, yeah, we need we need unaffiliated normies, not political normies, because uh, political normies their minds are all made up and they're not going to be converted. But yeah, I agree. I think a big part of what we need to focus on is bringing unaffiliated normies to our side who, uh, like, are are being like annoyed or bothered or encroached upon in some way by just normal day-to-day american life if if nothing else than just like mainstream discourse about race and stuff like that because to be honest with you like i don't really like want to be racist (laughs) like i'd rather not have to be racist i'm forced into it you know what i mean i feel forced into caring about politics i don't want to care about politics i'm fucking pissed that i have to care about this shit and one of the reasons why i support fascism is because fascism will like put an end to it i don't have to think about it anymore
8: well, I, I don't think it necessarily has to do with um, putting it front and center. Like, it, it all depends on how you go about it, right? Like, people are generally sheep and they need to be given a signal by someone higher status than them to get the okay that it's okay to say something. And Elon Musk is positioning himself in such a way where he's so respectable and frankly high status that he could communicate these things without let's let's call what it is scaring the hose right like if if elon musk started like hitler posting tomorrow and Cunny posting he would lose his credibility but he does it in a way that's very approachable and safe for normies right so you have this guy who who commands the respect of people and communicates it in a way where they can a understand it and b it doesn't scare them like when he sends his little exclamation points I think behind those little exclamation points, he's very, very aware and is probably just as racist as all of us. But he's strategic and he's smart and he knows to not scare the hose. Yeah, um, important yeah. quality. He has.
0: Yeah, he—he's the man. After I'm, I'm all in on him now. After Tuesday, his thing about George Soros, like that's it. I'm sold. the The way he just had this like pregnant pause of like fucking pure rage, and then he uh, he gave a princess bride quote it's like i was like okay i'm his guy now like he's my guy
8: i mean on top of that he put his money where his mouth is he spent 44 billion dollars on this kind of janky app um just from fucking not getting banned as often oh
0: that reminds me i wanted to point something out today
8: the most
0: epic premature ejaculation in human history (laughs) Was when nine thousand people got suspended on the day Elon Musk bought Twitter for saying nigger. Like, like nine thousand people posted nigger and got suspended on day one. It was it was like that day's gonna go down in the history books. Like those people were just like <laughs> they were the vanguard. They were the fucking Irish people in Braveheart that we like sent to charge into the fucking uh, archery fire. Like. And now like like they, they died for us. Like we're this is gonna be our place now. This is gonna be our platform now. And uh, those are the people who we pour beer out for uh, when we when we go into battle the post hard R
8: I, I just try to manage my expectations. I don't think I, I think Elon Musk is kind of a traditional liberal at the end of the day, but you know, he can see reality for what it is. Um, I don't think he's saying the hard R, you know, on his own time. I think he just sees things for what they are. Um, I I don't think we're going to be able to do and say whatever we want at the scale that we want to, um, because I think he's kind of in the sense of he's kind of a traditional liberal. Um, But I I do think he has a firm relationship with reality and isn't willing to sacrifice that. So I'm curious to see where he uh, sacrifices things and where he doesn't. Yeah, and I don't
0: even think we need to be able to say like literally anything we want, but we need. To, I mean, I speak so much more freely now, dude, because of Musk. Uh, I have to. I have to mute for a second to go do something. You guys talk, Adrian. What, what's going on with New York? Who was compromised? Did Babs Why did Bab tweet that? Because of Pariah? What's going on?
10: Oh, I, I mean, I, I haven't seen anything compromised. I hung out like on Saturday. Uh, with Veronica and, like, a couple people at the show. I hung out with, like, a Moldovan citizen. He's really fucking cool. Uh, On Tuesday night, had a good time. Uh, Yeah, it's good. I have no uh, no critiques of them. They're pretty good people. The New York scene's decent. Uh, What I I was thinking was, like, what I was going to ask was that, what did everyone think about the Daniel Penny Washington Post uh, article coming up today?
4: Like did like anyone
8: else read it sorry i'm a little drunk here.
3: was it the one was it the one with the uh the witness who said he was a hero that saved their lives exactly yeah oh
0: that was, that was washington post i saw that a pretty good piece yeah that was washington holy shit post. I, I didn't even realize I, I it when morning. i was reading yeah. it that
10: dude yeah Totally mainstream, totally mainstream posts, like incredible. Like I, I read that this morning, and it like charmed my life. just like during. The I day. think he's
0: gonna get off, but I, you know, I hope. I'm... I think he's gonna get off. Yeah. I think he's got three million dollars behind his legal fund, right? Yeah, last I knew, it was two million, but it could be up to three by now. All right, guys, madden and Adrian, please carry the space. I need to do something for a minute. I can't talk. I don't want any silence, though. Say anything. I don't give a fuck. I'm hammered. I fucking, yeah, I've been drinking fucking Bacardi, and I don't—I can't even believe I'm still talking. So I need to go smoke I've been a cigarette. Drinking,
8: uh, gin martinis for the last uh, two hours, so I'm pretty toasty myself.
0: Well, this is cool because this makes it feel like I'm not drinking alone. It makes it feel like I'm drinking with like 150 people. But yeah, go ahead. Anything you guys want to say? Whoever has the mic, just talk. Just please don't allow any silence. I don't <laughs> care what you say.
8: No, I think I'm going to reiterate what I said this morning about the uh, new CEO that he chose. Um, you know, people are very black-pilled on this, this woman that he chose. And I think that he chose her strategically. If you watch this uh, interview that she did with him, uh, where she kind of tried to longhouse him and say that, like, oh, you shouldn't be tweeting past 3 a.m. And do you think it's uh, problematic that you you know, say these certain things. And he basically told her to fuck off. You could see in his eyes that he really hates this woman. So um, my theory is that he hired her to get her uh, advertising connections um, to try to increase as much revenue into Twitter as possible. Um, He's on the path to making it profitable. Um, And I think he's going to probably establish those advertising connections, like connect those pipes as much as he can. And from there, um, I think eventually she's going to try to make the platform woke. And he's going to eventually show that, like, look, here's what happens when I hire a woke liberal woman, fire her, and then either hire someone that he actually wants to be the successor or take it back himself. Um, So that's my theory on what's going to happen. He doesn't have a huge track record of fucking up and making stupid decisions. I just don't buy it on surface value that he hired this woke liberal woman. It just doesn't make any fucking sense. I, I think there's probably some 3D chess going on. That's my that's my theory on it. All right. Fantastic. Astro, we need you to come back, buddy. Everyone's losing their boner here. We all got soft dicks in this space. I don't. <laughs> Astro, broad, Make it clear.
0: <laughs> I told you I couldn't talk. Just fucking talk,
8: broad. Uh, here, I'm not a fucking robot, man. Like, I I made a little point, and you know people should comment. That's how these things go.
0: It's right. It's getting late. It's getting late. Everybody's hammered. But look, man. <sighs> Just go ahead, broad, and then I'll be right back.
7: (laughs) Yeah. So on the subject of Elon, I I can't read his mind at all. It's also possible Elon's placed himself firmly at the center multiple times when he took on this platform and said his interest was leveling the playing field. It's quite possible he's demonstrating that simply that he can handle it. Okay. Um, Some people saw her dominating. Some people saw him. I think people saw that in the Trump interview that was on CNN, too, although – uh, it was demonstrated pretty effectively that it had a huge pro-Trump audience for a platform like CNN. So with with Musk, he might be demonstrating just that he's masterful enough that he can handle the things that other people on the right can't, which, again, going back to my first statement, that places him pretty firmly in the center, and it demonstrates he's capable of handling that position. Not many people can. Uh, both the right and the left have things that they say, depending on what what arena you're in? For instance, a Christian will always assert that God spits out the, the, lukewarm or whatever. But you'll hear things in every arena that tries to get you that try to get you to a collapse to one particular point of view or another. And if he's, and if you're capable of handling and considering somebody else's point of view, and conducting business within that and still asserting that he's the owner, uh, I I think that that cements him if nothing else as being firmly in control of this platform. Okay, and so I can't predict what he's thinking in his head or what the future may hold. But when I watch that video, uh, that would be what I saw.
0: Well, uh, Broad, I am often considered I'm often accused of conspiratorial thinking, but I consider you to be even more conspiratorial than me. And I'm very pro-Musk and I've laid out my argument for why elsewhere. I'd like to hear where you fall on Musk. You seem to, like, bridge the gap. From what I understand from what I've heard from you say is that you actually seem to have some faith in him and consider him very capable, as you've just said. But you also seem, you know, like Schwab, for example, is, like, last time I heard him talking about Musk, he's, like, fully anti-Musk. It's a conspiracy. Uh, I know that you... At least understand that position, if not believe it. So like, where do you stand on Musk? Like, is he, is he like trying to perpetuate some, is he trying to like turn us into like mind slaves to become like absorbed into the hive mind? Is that why he bought Twitter? Well, so when it comes to AI,
7: I don't buy any of the fear-mongering. People are using that, and, and there's always leg- legitimate concerns with any technology. You know, I've I've said that myself, but people use that stuff to cement, uh, if nothing else, income streams for the, you know, through the things that they're espousing. Uh, I think we can all relate to that. Anybody here that's a writer can understand why that would be done pretty quickly. Uh, so uh, he take him taking over Twitter and mining this for information posits something interesting because he can develop models that would be excluded from some of the other models. And if he's got access to other sources, and I've continued to insist uh, with ancients and Athenian present and, and some of our Christian and Catholic brethren that that stuff should probably be included, or you're going to disinclude those people and send them you know back to the land of the Amish when that stuff starts to uh, evolve further in our culture. Uh, but I'm not afraid of AI. I want to put that, put that out there first because with this robots and with this Neuralink, uh, one of the things i said is there's a missing component right now they're really good at pattern analysis but they don't have the ability to make a good firm decision let alone discern truth so let's put that out there first because there's nothing to be afraid of there yet okay there's no capacity for a dictator or an authoritarian without something behind them motivating them uh they're just a tool still and as with all technologies i open by saying There's good and bad with any purpose that you put a tool to. And my example was always a hammer. As far as Musk goes, when he was coming up with SpaceX and Tesla, he demonstrated a really interesting capacity to kind of go all in on more than one front. Uh, Not many people are capable of doing that. Hell yeah,
0: I'm with you on this 1000%, dude.
7: So that demonstrates capacity. He's very skillful and he's got the the right backers. I watched him at multiple points throughout that stage. I watched, first of all, how he does his PR in a way that nobody else does. He's got a team around him that put him face first out there and, and quickly chop up and digest. In fact, you see this now with a lot of the podcasters and especially with Jordan Peterson. People quickly chop stuff up and put it into circulation, but there's no actual de facto like marketing for his products besides that, right? You just see content moving around. I really like his take on content as far as this platform goes. He says that he wants to stress high quality content above even advertising revenue that he profits from. He's willing to let go of advertisers if he thinks they're not a good fit. All of those things. I mean, so if you, if you look at all of that, his arc from coming up in the left and how there was a lot of fanboyism around him, it concerned me a number of years ago because hype alone does not make something good. Hype alone does not give something a solid foundation. Uh, A, about a year and a half ago, uh, I have a little bit of insight here, but I'm not going to say why right now. All I can say is that he transformed into our literal Batman, okay? Uh, Batman is a bit of a, a conflicting heroic figure, right? But never does anything that that hurts the people that he's representing. It just means that he's in a position much like other heroic figures that would place him firmly in the camp of our Nietzschean bros. And then a lot of the Christians worry about seeing him wearing the the armor that he was wearing at that one thing. What I saw in that was that if you if anyone's familiar with the book *Childhood's End*, when you get to, uh, to the end of the story, there's a big reveal. And much like the the Princess Bride quote, I saw something similar to that in there. I'll just kind of leave it at that now. So he's hinting. He think... Is that
0: the book by Orson Scott Card?
7: No, that's by a... Wow. I'm just going to draw a blank suddenly. I think it's Robert Heinlein. Um, okay, all right, all right. It, it's it's the same as Starship Troopers, I'm pretty sure. I'd have yeah, to go yeah, look yeah. at my book. Yeah, it's book, Robert book yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, essentially you get to the end of the book. He's been talking through a mirror. Okay, we've got this concept of a mirror in our culture still. Uh and behind the mirror, rather than what he expects to see, because he's looking at a mirror, and and like all mirrors we're projecting, we expect to see what we're projecting. Uh, he kind of climbs through ductwork on the final day of, of being interviewed by this being that comes back to Earth and says, I really screwed up the first time. And you're expecting God And it turns out to be uh, something decidedly more ominous looking, let's put it that way. And the end of the book just says, wow, I wonder what really happened to leave everybody thinking that you were the bad guy. Um, Now, that's a sci-fi book. That's not really a hint as to reality, but it's an interesting little book to read. No, I I
0: like what you're saying. And actually, me and you you are way more aligned than I thought because, uh, you know, Schwab's not here, but I I disagree with him on Musk. Maybe me and him will talk it out sometime. Well, um, I,
7: I, I didn't like, I wouldn't say I disliked Musk, but again, the fanboyism concerned me because in other arenas, it's really good in the entertainment arena, but you could look at any star and see how quickly stardom evaporates, okay? And so if you place your faith, Christians would call that idolatry, but if you place your faith in something like that, it has the capacity to dissipate, and I watched him go through different gates with his financing. Uh, He would be in a position where everything was in jeopardy and then something would happen to ease the way. And I know when you're on that side of the coin, that means you have to make a point of compromise and we can look at what's happened with his family. And he's spoken openly about being angry about what happened to his son, okay? Yeah,
0: he he navigates all that so deftly. Like we have to remember that we are talking about the richest man in the world, okay? We're, We're talking about a guy who can basically do whatever he wants. And uh, through basically pure force force of will and also like a very deft, nimble, intellectual mind to navigate all this shit and to always come out on top. That's the thing about Musk. That's why I have – that's why I use the word faith. You use the word faith. The reason why –
7: so, so real quick, he's found he's more f- firmly founded or he has a firmer foundation than he did before. Uh, but he has directly he said in an interview uh, what he where he places his belief. And if you dig into the word that he uses, it doesn't it, it aligns with the suit that he was wearing. OK, and he was couching it and used very careful phrasing. But I caught it. Uh, what I would say to that effect is that some of my favorite musical acts and some of my favorite couples in love had a dynamism that were born out of the, the so we call it call and response if you're singing, uh, or my favorite point of reference, and forgive me for going here again, is Pink Floyd. When Gilmore and Roger Waters were both at the helm, uh, there was just something present in that interplay between the light and the dark. And we have that, you know, in the beginning was the light, but then we had the day and the night. And so you've got this interplay between the day and the night that's possible with Musk involved in the story now. Um, and people would—I'm just not fearful for outcomes anymore. I don't have the spirit of fear, I guess you could say. So even if somebody that was, was a person of faith and looked askance, like our buddy uh, Chase Sovereign Bra does, uh, at the has, at his choice of armor and his choice of words in certain situations, uh, it's much like AI. I don't have the same fear for the ultimate outcome. He's playing his role really well. He's much more firmly founded than he ever was, and he did exact—he's doing exactly what he says at every turn. And if you put aside ideology and belief, because a lot of that's just play as you've said he's very rich so he has the ability to just put on a suit that other people would never dare to wear okay and he's reinforcing free speech and so all of that has a tremendous amount of consistency and so as a dad type figure i want somewhere else i like somebody saying that they loved how elon musk dads the platform because somebody else was saying that jack was the perfect master for the platform because he was like an absentee father and that's that's the counterpoint well we 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 like musk because he's a present father okay so that takes us back to the beginning of your the conversation with uh, the patriarchal figure of the household kind of becoming the model for the culture. And I think it fits really well. And it's, and it's, it's helped ride our ship pretty well. Okay. So I, I, if nothing else, I owe him a debt of gratitude as to you for being able to speak more as a white male in our culture. And I would say, I, I admire him much more than I used to. Uh, and I suspect that would resonate with him, that he would appreciate hearing that.
0: All right, man. I'm with you. Actually, we are way more aligned on Musk than I thought, which I'm happy about. Kram is here. Listen, I'm like, I'm fucking spent. This was like one of the most amazing spaces I ever hosted. Uh, And just, you know, get ready for more. It's it's not going to end. I have to get up at like 530 in the morning, 6 in the morning. I'll be hosting a morning space. Uh, but I want to hear from Crom because I've been talking to Crom for the last couple days, and uh, the dude's pretty wild. <laughs> I didn't think he was going to make it, and he showed up at the very end. So we're going to end the space uh, with Crom here. I-, I-, I think I know what he's going to bring up, and it's quite wild. It deserves its own space. But go ahead, Crom. Oh. oh no, I wasn't going to go there.
5: Um, can you guys hear
0: me? Yeah, we're good to go.
5: Okay. Um, I wanted to um, just keep going off of of Musk. I'm also a big Musk fan. Um, And I totally agree that I personally am not worried about any of the AI stuff. Um, And this has put me in conflict recently because I've always thought of Musk as, like, maybe the world's only civilizational level prepper. Uh, That's, like, you know, across all of his, all the stuff he's doing that I take him just straight for his word. That's why I'm on Twitter. That's why He's interested in the space exploration, uh, the electric cars, all of it. I think of is it's all just civilizational level prepping, like a level of prepping just scaled up um, to a level that no one ever does. And uh, with AI, I think he's he's really buying this kind of uh, this Yud line of of argument that um, and this like Nick Bostrom level of argument. That this is an existential threat, um, and I personally don't buy that at all. I think that's uh, – I don't think that they even believe that. I think really um, that that's kind of a Mott and Bailey argument. They'll say that this is to prevent the great paperclip apocalypse, but in reality, I think it's just about gatekeeping the technology. Um, if you look at, like, last week, there was uh, a Google researcher leaked a document. Um, it was an internal document that was leaked called uh, "We Have No Moat." You could Google that, but it, it basically goes over uh, the guys just shitting down his lip. because open source modeling um, has been eating their lunch. And uh, you know, there's like some really juicy quotes in there about you know, like these open source models are doing with a hundred dollars and thirteen billion parameters, but like we struggle to do with like their Bard model for $300 million and like so many hundred billion. And uh, like, I, I think that's pretty much all it Is It's like, uh, if you look at, from the point of view of these people, um, all of us have been causing enough trouble with social media and Photoshop that they really don't want these AI tools to get out of hand. So that's kind of my perspective on it. That's
0: my, my only own i on Musk most right now. Yeah, I agree. And I basically didn't care about AI up until the last couple of weeks because it seems like with the development of chat GPT, it's becoming more and more of a reality. And it's going to be something that we actually now have to start dealing with in our day-to-day lives more and more <clears throat> as, the, as time goes on. I need to end... But Will is here, so Will, uh, what's up, buddy? I I wish you made it earlier, because I'm pretty much done. But uh, what's up?
9: Okay. Oh, oh well. Uh, you you messaged me to join, so I was. Uh, well, yeah, I, w- if... I wanted you to join. <laughs> oh, okay, got it. Okay. Well, I, I don't know. I, like. There's nothing to say. Like just that. Generally, um, uh, if you guys are talking about AI models, I could go off on that. But the that's not. The, that's not the um,
8: that's not the point of the space. So, um,
9: but yeah, no. I mean, it's. Not, um, I'm looking forward to listening to the recording. But uh, I thought you had something
8: specific to talk about. So, well, I, I
0: did, but uh I did, I did have something specific to talk about. But I'm done. I'm blasted. I'm fucking. I have hammered on Bacardi. So, I think it's over. I think I think it's fucking completely over <laughs> uh, this was this so this was over. like the best space ever and uh, just look forward to more I, I really hope must starts fucking monetizing this shit like live streams and then I'll just be doing this all the time and I will uh, start making bank on crypto because you'll all have to pay to come here and and then I will become your overlord. And Musk will listen to me and he will turn me into his like uh, prophet of Elon Musk. And I will become uh, the leader of a massive online cult and we will birth a new religion. And that new religion will see uh, colonization of Mars as a return to the holy city of Avalon. And that we will uh, install the king back on his rightful throne. And um, Elon Musk will be the new King Arthur, and uh, we will then send nuclear weapons from Mars back to planet Earth, and we will finally achieve TND, Uh, and uh, we will we will uh, initiate our uh, Aryan breeding program on Mars, uh, on a colony that we will call Agartha, and we will birth the new Atlantis. And that uh, we will then swim the cosmic waters of the age of Aquarius into the next age, in which we will be the Hyperborean demigods of the next civilization. But um, I need crypto to do that. So Elon Musk, don't let me down. Mark Andreessen, if you're in here on your alt, I know that you lurk on an alt. Uh, I will be your strongest soldier. You can start retweeting me, and um, Kim.com. You need to come on my podcast because uh, I I love that you're a fat German whoremonger who sleeps with four foot eleven Filipino women and uh, gets them pregnant. So I need your pygmy army to help to help uh, defeat the forces of Zog. So I will arm them with uh, sabers of light. And they will take down the Israeli forces. You know, I wanted to say something, by the way. I was thinking about this. I, I was thinking about that, like, if your perspective, right? I'm going to edit this part out of the podcast because this is going to be released as a podcast. And, and you are privileged to be here to hear me say the thing that I will edit out. And this is why you will be paying for my spaces in the future with 0.000000003 Bitcoin. Because I will say things like this. That if you look at the situation as it rests on the ground, if you, want, if you are fighting an enemy right, that you have no chance of defeating, but you're committed to fight that enemy, the only thing you can do, the only thing you can hope for, like uh, Jason Momoa does in uh, Dune when he fights the Sardaukar, is you take as many of them with you as you want. Or as you can, excuse me. So if our enemy are the brown, unwashed hordes who are sweeping over our borders and taking over our countries, and you think that you're going under like the Roman soldier at Pompeii when Vesuvius erupts, the best thing you can hope to do is bring as many of them into the fucking path of the lava as you can before you're done. I think that if that's your only tactic, then perhaps maybe... We should become Zionists. Because I think if anyone's going to drop a nuclear bomb on brown people and take as many of them out as possible before we're all done for, it's going to be Israel. Israel has nuclear weapons and they want to nuke all sorts of brown countries, like Iran. And fucking, you know, they want to provoke a war between India and Pakistan. So maybe we should all become Zionists. And uh, advocate for them to nuke Iran before America is completely lost forever. Maybe the Lakoud party is our party. Maybe that's what, what we need to put our effort behind. Maybe the Fuentes people are hired by the Saudi state who want to, uh, you know, shut down Israel because they don't like Zionism because they know that their nuclear weapons, uh, you know, in a war of attrition... Maybe Israel's our only fucking hope, do you really think Joe Biden is going to drop a nuclear bomb on Chicago? No, he's
8: not astro when you be a good friend here <laughs> Let me ask you to pump the brakes Let me ask you to drink a drink a big tall glass of water and uh, i think I think it's time to go to bed buddy <laughs> all, right. <laughs> all right brother this is why this is why I need that yeah. gold I think you need to pump the brakes and uh you know. Get a good night's sleep. That's true. Oh, yeah.
0: All right. I have a space. Seven o'clock tomorrow morning. Um I guess that's it. I guess I'm done.
8: All right. I'll see you in the morning, buddy.
0: Thank you, brother. <laughs> I I couldn't do it without Med Gold.
8: I gotta uh, I gotta tell you when it's time to wrap it up. That's my job here. It's it's time.
0: <laughs> it's time. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for coming. I'm still okay, goodbye. I'm not gonna say anything else. <laughs>